Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. This is Drew. Hey, hey, everyone. So today, we're going to revisit an idea that we've done in a previous episode. Uh, before we start, I want to tell you, I want to remind you guys that with uh, the new year coming along, we do still intend to do our top 25 DC comics of all time, and uh, we, we will uh, start on that list, we promise, but... Until then, we we thought we'd continue uh, our series of doing our dishonorable mention for DC Comics. That's uh, just stuff that we thought that most people kind of assume would make the list, and uh, we're we're gonna pick it out, pick at, pick it out, and we're gonna dissect it for all of you, our lovely listeners. Yeah. So today we are going to cover two books because they're somewhat related. They both have the same writer and they're both about Batman. But we're going to cover Batman The Long Halloween and Batman Hush. So like Albert was saying, in the context of us trying to discern our top 25 DC comics the way that we did our top 25 Marvel comics, I think we realized that something that would be a worthwhile endeavor would be to uh, examine the books that I think that most people would probably assume would be on a list of the best DC stories because especially with the long Halloween, I think that's a book that gets a lot of love and a lot of acclaim. It tends to make it on a lot of lists of top Batman stories of all time, if not top DC stories of all time. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So naturally it's in our spiritual and intellectual interest to stomp on those uh <laughs> stomp on those people and those ideas that would believe that these books are are great works of art and fiction <laughs> i like how you didn't say we're gonna stomp on the text itself we're gonna stomp on the people that like it <laughs> you're coming out full well, guns blazing here <laughs> i imagine that in in our in our takedown of the work itself there's gonna be there's a good chance that there's a fair amount of people who are gonna throw up their hands, maybe say maybe uh you know take it personally in the heart and in the soul and feel like they they you know they're gonna have to defend uh the honor of these books and it's those people that I wish to hurt. <laughs> that's true. That that's a good point. That's a good point. But yeah, the the Long Halloween and even Batman Hush, I think those are comics that a lot of people hail and continue to hail as definitive and evergreen and great Batman comics. I and don't think we agree with that. No, we definitely do not agree with that. We, we re-read, re-read these comics and analyzed them to try and pick apart why we don't think they hold up. Yeah. So hopefully uh, this will be kind of an educational exercise for us as well to be able to articulate why we don't think that these books hold up to scrutiny we're trying to open your eyes yeah i was gonna say like just for the sake of transparency i will admit you know at least on my on my part on my behalf that at the time when these came out they were books that i was that i was high on that i enjoyed uh they were even books that i recommended to people at, at at a at a very particular point in time so yeah same here same here i i admit that you know uh, maybe yeah. as something it's something that when I read as a younger insolent pup 
I, I, I thought I was, I thought it was deep. I thought I was reading something uh, profound and something that was high art. But as, as I've revisited that, even, even as recently as this past week for this uh, particular episode, I can confirm that it's not something that's aged too well or mm-hmm. means much of anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what happens sometimes. You just grow up and you age out of things. You revisit yeah. the stuff that you believed in when you were younger, and you find, and sometimes it's disappointing to find that they're not as great as you remember. Yeah. You know, we're we're not we're not proud of our past, but at least we were never part of any white supremacist groups. <laughs> Uh, I'll have to double check on that to make sure that <laughs> any memberships I might be uh, involved in have lapsed and that I can officially claim that as of right now, that that is a statement that I can currently say is true, but until I can confirm that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just have to leave that up in the air. Okay. Okay. You, you'll have to take my word for it then. I mean, I, yeah. I've only known you for what, like maybe 15 years. So your life before meeting me, you could have lived a whole different lifestyle that I'm completely ignorant of. Well, I'm even talking about something as recent as last Tuesday, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I did. Up, up, I don't remember what I did last Tuesday. What did I join? Did I join a white supremacy group? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. It's been a long week. I don't know. I don't know what I'm always doing. I'm not responsible I, I, for your actions. Yeah, I'm constantly signing up for streaming services and subscriptions where I get things for free. I don't know what I signed up for. Maybe I did sign up for a white supremacy group. <laughs> I just like the discounts. What do you want? Yeah, it's, it's 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 not about hate. It's about discounts. Exactly. It's not about hate. It's about my love of discounts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So for those of you who have been listening to our show for a while, or if you're familiar with what we did when we did our Marvel Top 25, the way that we, the criteria that we laid out for the Top 25 was four categories, basically. So we had the categories of craft, originality, impact, and withstanding the test of time. So the those four categories were what we graded the things that we read as we made our list. So when we were, as we work on our top 25 DC list, we're going down that same checklist and trying to figure out uh, where each of these works measures up in all four of those areas. Um, we'll, we'll cover each of those categories as we discuss the books. Uh, I th- unless you have anything else to say, I think we can go ahead and get started. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, we plan to discuss the books one at a time. So first we'll discuss The Long Halloween, and then we'll discuss Hush, and then probably after that we'll have some things to say about both of them in in conjunction with each other, because they do have a decent number of similarities, and there's also the common denominator of Jeff Loeb. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, uh, I, I, it, you, you hit it on the head. You got it right there. Um, okay. Should I give a just brief description of the Long Halloween, or? 
How's that sound? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read the credits first so we know who's responsible for this. Go for it. This mess, okay. this travesty, <laughs> this abortion. Uh, it wasn't really aborted because it's still alive. It's constantly well, kept in print. It aborted my taste in good comics. <laughs> it aborted my faith in in the fandom. So, <laughs> Dang, you used to have faith in people? That must have been a really long time ago. That's what I'm talking about. This book did that. <laughs> it drowned my dreams like a fetus in a lake. <laughs> so batman the long <laughs> halloween is a 13 issue limited series that was originally published in 1996 and 1997 it was written by jeff loeb drawn by tim sale colored by gregory wright lettered by richard starkings and comic craft uh yeah you want to go into the synopsis, Albert? Yeah, uh, it's nothing super dense or super deep, but it takes place in the early years of Batman's career, uh, and it revolves around a mystery killer that's uh, basically uh, attacking Gotham City. And this mystery killer goes by the name of Holiday, and his gimmick is that for every month of the, uh, for every month of the year he kills someone on a particular holiday and uh the story takes place over the course of a year in batman's life as he tries to solve this mystery and that's that's basically about it Mm -hmm. unless there's something some detail that you want to mention that you felt was important or that i missed no that's the basic plot synopsis uh i I do want to mention that because we're going to be talking about the long halloween and hush in a good amount of detail that we're pretty much going to spoil both of these stories yeah so for anyone listening if if you haven't read either of the either of these comics it doesn't really matter because we don't recommend you read them anyway yeah (laughs) but if you want if you want to know exactly what we're talking about then it would be helpful to to read them and you know discern for yourself whether what we're saying makes sense or not we uh, we took it upon ourselves to bear the burden of the weight of this comic, like a <laughs> lodestone around our necks as we drown ourselves. We're so not the heroes that, that you deserve. We're the heroes you need. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, all all we ask in return is that you worship us and that you exalt our names and you know maybe name your children after us. Do it. Or better yet, just change your name and name yourself after us. Or do both. Name yourself and your children after us. I don't think I'm asking too much. By Jove. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Long Halloween. You mentioned earlier, Albert, that this was something that you liked when you were younger. So I, I'm just curious, how did you first discover The Long Halloween and how do you feel about it after reading it for the first time? Uh, so I think this is just going to confirm, uh, your hate for something that I, I still look back at fondly, but maybe, but I'm, I'm definitely maybe not quite as high on it as I used to be, but it was something that I read about in Wizard and they were making a big deal about this, making a huge push for this comic because, 
Uh, I've mentioned this in other episodes, um, you know, but when I was younger, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of access to comics, but what I did have access to was Wizard Magazine. It was, uh, you know, just a, a, a fan magazine that came out every month and just kind of gave you uh, bits and pieces of everything that was going going on in comicdom. Uh, you know, this was before the internet, right? Or before the mm-hmm. the internet that we know. So... It was it was probably the cheapest best way for me to like maintain some peripheral uh, knowledge of everything that was going on in comics, and this was kind of a big deal at the time. Was uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale on on the Long Halloween, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And the stores were promoting it pretty heavily. Uh, and I'll admit, did you buy this? Uh, as a, did you buy this as it was coming out monthly? I did not. Uh, so I'll admit that Tim Sale's art was different enough where looking at it, 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 it lent an air of gravitas and, uh, seriousness to the book that made it feel more grown up, more adult, more, you know, like it wasn't just a comic for kids, right? And Mm -hmm. yeah, and I guess that hits that hits a particular note that or that hit a particular note for me when i was i want to say in high school uh, when did you say this came out again 97 96 and 97 yeah so this you know as as a teen that was uh probably that was probably in the middle of trying to figure out what it meant to be an adult and uh trying to find whatever that transitional sweet spot was between uh just adventure comics and something more i guess literary that was what hit me at the time so um i i wasn't buying it monthly but it was something i i kept my eye out on and when it came out as a trade paperback i definitely bought it as a trade paperback um Mm -hmm. and that was yeah that was a long halloween yeah is it what something about, after you bought it as a collected edition? Is it something that you went back and would reread uh, pretty regularly, or how, how? I guess I'm curious to see how your thoughts about it evolved over the years. Oh, uh, I definitely reread it quite a few times in 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 that early uh, in the early years of my owning of it. Uh, it was. Maybe it was a thing where because I had spent money on it, I was trying to get my money's worth. Yeah. Or maybe I, I genuinely did like it. Or I'm, I might even go so far as to say that I think I deluded myself into believing that it was better than it actually was, even at the time. But I just had to do it to justify my ownership of it. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. so it was something that I read quite a bit early on uh, after I bought it. Uh, maybe, maybe like once a year, or once not, no, nah, not once a year. Maybe once every year and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I read it at least two, three or four times or something like that. I forget, but yeah, uh, it was something that um, I revisited more often, more more often than a lot of books that I owned. Uh, Did you find that the more times you read it, uh, 
the less highly you thought of it or did that not really factor in until more recent years if i had to be perfectly honest i think it wasn't until i started actually talking to you about it like well this goes back to what i was saying earlier i think i was already pretty uh like I had pretty uh, middling taste or, or a pretty middling feeling on it, uh, even even before anyone said anything. But as I as I talked to you about it more, it just made those feelings come out more. As I just came to realize, you know what, kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. And the things that I was willing to turn a blind eye to, things that things that uh, I was willing to ignore just ended up becoming things where, yeah, they just ended up becoming things where over time, as as I read it again and again, it just made me realize just how stupid the book was. Uh, I, I'd probably mm-hmm. say it's it's that idea of as you become more familiar with something over time. Uh, you notice all the little flaws? Yeah, like, well, one one could argue that as you become more familiar something with something, you you can either learn to love it more or you can learn to hate it more. And familiarity breeds hate. Exactly, exactly. And this was certainly a case where familiarity bred not just hate but a resentment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know what? In in a vacuum, I I think I could have still read this book and just been just been whatever about it right i could have had absolutely no real feelings on it except other than you know what i don't really like this book as much as i thought i did but if i had to add the the meta context of it all i if i had to be perfectly honest it's the fact that so many people uh put this book on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and have so much appreciation for it that over time that that uh just that amplified your a, disdain exactly that lack of appreciation that i had for my book that really genuinely did become resentment because it was just like what, what are you guys talking about this book really isn't the thing that you think it is you know mm-hmm. like yeah fanboys they, they love it man um yeah what was your experience with the book drew like mm-hmm. do you so remember I'd... what what your first uh, knowledge of it was or when it first came to your attention? Yeah, so I was not aware of it while it was being serialized because it came out, the issues came out during that period when I had kind of stopped paying attention to Marvel and DC Comics. And I I was in that phase where I thought, I somewhat thought that I had grown out of comics, but uh, really I was just kind of tired because the Clone Saga and Spider-Man and the Onslaught stuff, you know, that that really destroyed my interest in trying to keep up with superhero comics. So I would only like I would still go to the comic shop to check out manga and other other things like that. But um, as far as following a monthly book or paying attention to Wizard, I I'd kind of stopped doing that. So it wasn't until a few years later when I got back into comics into at least Marvel and DC comics that I realized that this was a pretty big book. I was in high school 
and I still remember this for some reason, but I must have been either uh, it was definitely in the later part of high school. So I'm guessing it was closer to like 99 or maybe even almost 2000. So a couple of years after Long Halloween had come out in trade paperback, but I was at school and I saw these two other kids who were in the year below me, or I forget, they were underclassmen, but I saw them in the in the courtyard at a lunch table and both of them were just like huddled around this comic. And I was like, huh, that's weird. I usually don't see kids reading comics at school because, mm. you know, that was a period when it wasn't cool to read comics, especially at that age. You would just get teased or something or bullied, insulted. But they were, uh, you know, pretty gleeful about it. Like they didn't they didn't care who was looking. And I happened to uh, catch the cover of it. And it was Batman Long Halloween with that distinctive blue cover uh, mm. with Batman and, uh, you know, the different villains and whatnot wrapped in his cape. And I, I just thought it was a really distinct cover. I'd never really seen anything like that. It just looked different from the Marvel and DC comics that I was familiar with. So I remembered that cover. Then eventually I, I went to a bookstore, to Borders, <laughs> mm-hmm. to Borders Books. And I found the copy of the book there. And I just read it at the store, you know? Like yeah. how we used to read a lot of comics was just going to bookstores and, and just taking advantage of the fact that they didn't really, <laughs> the people who worked there didn't really care to kick us out if we were just reading books for hours on end. Yeah, yeah. So that that's how I first discovered The Long Halloween. And at the time, yeah, I admit, I liked it a lot. Like, it, it kind of blew me away. It, yeah. Not kind of. It, it did blow me away. Like, that was the thing that made me interested in Batman again. And, and then I went back and, and looked for, you know, all sorts of other Batman comics that I hadn't read over the years. It was, yeah, The Long Halloween was one of those books that just got me back into reading superhero comics even though i wasn't really buying them at the very least i would be going to the bookstore to read them for free mm-hmm. or go to the library and just to see what they had at the time it was a pitiful collection at the library but you know i was still looking to to read stuff so i give i give the long halloween credit for that it it kind of reinvigorated my interest in in big two superhero comics at a time when my interest had waned and then uh, in, in terms of my relationship to the book in the ensuing years, when I was in college, I ended up buying my own copy of this because I remembered liking it so much that I felt like I had to own it. Mm. And it just became one of those books where I was really into it. And anytime I had a friend who was curious about comics or interested in Batman, this would be the book that I would let them read. You know, I would let them borrow my copy and and, you know, I'd hype it up and be like, yeah, you got to check this out. It, it's like really mature yeah, and yeah. and all this and that. It's dark and, and tells a, a mystery story. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's embarrassing to think of now, but that that's really how I felt about it when I was that age. And I'd say... Can I ask you something? Yeah, go ahead. Like, I, I, I sort of said it earlier, but do you think... Yeah, I mean, do you think it, it had something to do with our age where you know being kind of 
young and dumb and immature that we looked at something like that and we were like, yeah, this is what literature looks like. This is what comics would look like if it was trying to be literary. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I thought of it that way. I don't think I looked okay. at it. And I'm, I don't think I thought, yeah, this is literary comics. Right. Because especially when I was in college, because like by that point, I had already discovered like actual literary comics and, and indie yeah, comics yeah, yeah. and stuff. So I, I could I could at least tell the difference between like a Daniel Close book and The Long Halloween. Right, right. But I think I just looked at The Long Halloween as an example of a serious or a more adult-oriented yeah, Batman yeah. comic. You know, like it, it still felt weightier. It felt more mature. Uh, in retrospect, I think a lot of it had to do with the artwork and the yeah. fact that it was a pretty thick book in terms of just the sheer number of pages. Yeah. I will say that in the ensuing years, after those college years, I would periodically go back to The Long Halloween and reread it. And I still appreciated and enjoyed the artwork, but I don't really know what it is. But as, as time went by, the more I would reread this comic, the more or the less affection I would feel for it. And it, it, my affection for it would diminish. And I knew that people really respected this comic. So I was like, just wondering if I had just worn it out by reading it too much and flipping mm. through it too much. But I'm pretty sure what happened was I, I was just on Google one day and looking for reviews, you know, just searching for what other people had to say about this. And, and even though the majority of people had praise for it, I think I found a couple of people writing about it in a more critical way, critical way. And that was what helped me think about the story and they just them pointing out some of the flaws in the story opened up the floodgates and then, and then I started to see a bunch of yeah. different flaws that the story had as well right 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 okay it's uh it's it's isn't it like that that bane line from batman it's like you were born in darkness but then once you saw the light it was blinding <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh bane so let's take a look at this book in terms of the criteria that we had set forth. I think the one area where we can't deny this scores a good amount of points is the impact. So let's yeah. let's start with that. Let's talk about the impact that The Long Halloween had. It's definitely a work that... I want to say that Jeff Loeb was already up and coming but it was the thing that put him on the map as far as i can tell like that made him i, I guess the the closest thing that i could call it would be a household name at least as, as far as comic book collectors go mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. like i know he had worked on a couple of things before for this um i know he did challenges of the unknown and he might have done some uh some smaller things uh, he primarily he did, came from. He did some X Men stuff. Yeah, like yeah. He worked on. He wrote Cable, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I think prior to this, the thing that he was most known for, at least by us, was he did Commando. He did the script Commando, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and yep. Alyssa Milano. Yeah. So, uh, so I was it was super kind of, into that movie when I was a kid. <laughs> the it was kind of a big deal because they kept. Whenever one someone comes from movies to do comics, uh, maybe maybe this was 
a thing at the time. I don't know if it's still as big of a draw now, but it it was always kind of a big draw at the time because it was like, well, movies are popular and this this makes him legitimate because he comes from movies or TV and he's coming to comics, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it almost felt like they were promoting, uh, whenever they were talking about it, they would promote him as the guy who came from Commando or Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf is the other thing that he was known for. You know? That's right. Another yeah. com- uh, another movie I liked when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, it the long Halloween was something that put him and I want to say Tim Sale on the map too, even because it's not that Tim Sale wasn't. Uh, it's the same situation. It's not that Tim Sale wasn't around at the time. Uh, he had done challenges of the unknown before that, but you know, after long Halloween, it was like. Again, like, you know, maybe this was just how I was thinking of it, but uh, it was like, oh, this is, these are serious Batman books. And, uh, and, you know, whenever you saw their names on it, it was like, these were the geniuses behind it, you know? Yeah, yeah. They, this would be considered their breakout book, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, Loeb and Sale had collaborated on Challengers of the Unknown a couple years before this, which... Might be one of their better comics, I think. And I believe they also did a Marvel book together before the Long Halloween. I think they did a Gambit miniseries. It was either a Gambit or a, a Gambit and Wolverine comic. I, f- I forget exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't until this comic where I think they both became comic book superstars. Yeah. And then after it, we would see them team up repeatedly they were they were kind of a dynamic duo because mm-hmm. dc did a bunch of stuff uh they like it got a sequel you know and yeah. uh and then once uh dc was kind of done with them marvel scooped them up because they thought you know what a get so they got uh jeff Lope and tim sale to do like a series of mini series uh for each of their each of their uh you know main heroes as as kind of a a prestige project that's that's mm-hmm. really all i can really call it yeah so, i think it, it's one of those situations where they looked at Loeb and sale as a couple of creators who could generate evergreen type of stories yeah where the stories that they would put out would be self-contained wouldn't rely on too much knowledge of the current continuity but they would be things that anybody could pick up anybody with a passing knowledge of batman or daredevil or spider-man or hulk or whatever could just pick up that comic and enjoy it for what it is as telling a complete story something that i guess in their minds would be sort of this iconic story featuring that character yeah yeah no that's uh absolutely the way to put it because the stories were really self-contained and yeah, I'll I'll admit, even as a uh, as a you know young man slash teenager, tall boy, whatever you want to call me, uh, <laughs> like even at the time, it was something where yeah, this goes back to the idea of me thinking this was like a serious piece of work. I, I remember I would like talk to other people who weren't into comics, and almost as a way to try to convince them that this was something different, that this wasn't you know bam pow adam west batman or whatever like this is you know this isn't kitschy this is 
adult. So I, mm-hmm. I would I would recommend this in my uh in my list of books uh that I to just to point out how how comics weren't just for kids, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So just so people can get an idea of the stuff that Loeb and Sale ended up generating off the back of this. They did a direct sequel called Batman Dark Victory. They did Superman for All Seasons. Then they went over to Marvel and they did Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man Blue, Hulk Gray. They went back to D- DC and did Catwoman when in Rome, which was also a spin-off of uh, Dark Victory. So, yeah, together, these guys ended up becoming a pair of, I don't know, reliable hit makers, if that's accurate. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what the sales were on those books, but I assume that the fact that they kept on doing them meant yeah. that they were selling a good amount of copies. Yeah, and that's, like, I don't, I don't know if these books had an impact in the sense that they altered the... Uh, uh, in the in in the sense that they they were stories that people pulled from and used for other stories moving forward, or that they changed the universe. But the impact primarily was that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale became so popular that they just kept getting work, you know, and that Marvel and DC would fight over them. That they had, yeah, they had kind of a formula yeah. going, and it was a reliable way to to generate yeah. interest. Exactly. And then on top of that, just the fact that Jeff Loeb would eventually get so many other projects that didn't involve Tim Sale, mm-hmm. and those did affect the comic storytelling landscape. Yeah, uh, you know the in-universe story in probably the worst ways possible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's an impact right there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to go into it too much because we will talk about Hush, but I, I do feel like Hush was probably something that impacted the universe more directly, uh, like, you know, yeah. in terms of in-universe in continuity, whereas this, the impact of this was something that was felt more just in terms of... Uh, just, the real world? Yeah, the real world, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that the Long Halloween did or helped do is that it helped popularize quote-unquote noir comics yeah it's obviously not as good as something like sin city but hey this one has batman in it <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and i'm not really sure if this counts as noir fiction the way that sin city is because i think in the long halloween right and wrong are pretty clearly defined and there aren't a whole lot of moral shades of gray it's not as bleak or as twisted as you would expect actual yeah. noir fiction to be yeah but you know in recent years dc actually did publish a black and white edition of this and called they called it batman noir the long halloween yeah. i think I wonder- uh, but i think that's got more to do with the fact that tim sales visuals in black and white have a lot more in common with the aesthetics of film noir which yeah, exactly. isn't necessarily the same thing as noir fiction. There's a distinction exactly. between them. But I, exactly. I think just that that uh, catchphrase, you know, or the, the buzzword of of using noir as a descriptor for dark crime-oriented comics, I think this played a, a pretty big role in helping 
make those kind of comics a little bit more appealing to the mass audience. Yeah, it showed that there was a market for them, or that you could market them rather. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, we we did get a lot of noir comics in the years following it. Uh, I I don't know if I'm sure there's a way to like trace everything backwards and uh, attribute some of the popularity of those comics to something like the Long Halloween. Mm-hmm. Even though I would begrudgingly do that. <laughs> like i don't want to give it the credit that it might be due uh i'll just put i'll just say this like if if someone could trace that line backwards and make make the argument that they uh bore some responsibility for popularizing those things i i yeah i would begrudgingly accept that i don't know if i would emotionally support that idea but right right yeah Another big impact that The Long Halloween had was how it impacts the Batman of the movies. Specifically, it was a pretty big influence on the Christopher Nolan Batman films. Like the one of the direct influences that you can specifically point to is the second movie of the Nolan trilogy, The Dark Knight from 2008. That movie features Harvey Dent and his transformation into Two-Face, which is also the story that is covered in The Long Halloween. Some of the characters are uh, are similar, uh, I think. or Well, actually, I don't remember the names of the movie mobsters, but I do remember that uh, one of the Falcone things in the movie... In there. Falcone and Maroney were in there, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so yeah, so there you go. And I remember one of the the plot elements of the movie was how Harvey Dent makes a Harvey Dent makes a pact with Commissioner Gordon and Batman to take down the mobs. There's even this uh, scene where I think Harvey Dent is campaigning for is it campaigning for DA or some kind of public office, and one of the quotes was, "I believe in Harvey Dent," which is a a line that is said in the long Halloween. And I also think I remember reading when they were making those movies, I think the people who were involved in making them did mention specifically the long Halloween as an influence on the tone of the, of those films. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a good chance that the long Halloween is one of the big inspirations or source material for this upcoming the Batman movie. Uh, I could imagine that too. It, it, it does feel like from the commercials they try to take. It, it's weird. We're at a point in the movies where the idea of a dark Batman seems to be the predominant vision for Batman, and mm-hmm. it just feels like each subsequent Batman fo- movie tries to out dark the last Batman movie, or they try to do their version of it. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty I don't know. We're in, we're in a pretty weird place with Batman movies. So if just based on the commercials that I've seen, I if you told me that it took Tim Sale as and and Jeff Loeb's uh Long Halloween as uh inspiration for it, I could see it. Mm-hmm. I I I I think that that's in there. 
We'll have to watch sure. it to confirm, but I think at least from the visual aesthetic, it, I would guess that The Long Halloween was something that the filmmakers probably read before they set out to make the movie. Yeah, just uh, wish they had read a different Batman story. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they all read The Long Halloween? <laughs> because, like we said, man, people consider it one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Batman story. Maybe it's because it's just easy to read. <laughs> I don't know. This is I don't know, also, man. Yeah, it's also it was also popular enough that it warranted a two-part DC animated movie adaptation. Yeah, did you watch that? I did not watch it. I I was thinking about borrowing it from the library, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, there's there's a chance that the movie could be less bad than the comic. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on the impact that the Long Halloween had? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I just reiterate the fact that, in terms of our criteria, the the impact is definitely probably the 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 biggest, highest scoring uh element of this book. You mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, but we can, we can go into, uh, something like the craft or the ability to withstand the test of time or, uh, uh, let, let's start with whatever. originality. What do you have to say about the long Halloween's originality, Albert? Uh, well, going to back to what we said earlier, back to what we said earlier, uh, maybe at the time, because there just wasn't anything much to compare it to. Uh, and because it was just something that was so uh, visually unique due to Tim Sale's art, it felt like it was original, right? Again, this is this idea that uh, we had come out of an era where, you know, we had a bunch of Nightfall Batman stuff. And, like, I don't know what the contemporaries of the, uh, uh, or what the contemporary version of Batman was at the time, but, Might have you been know, No it, Man's Land. okay. So it was still a lot of Batman as 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 I, I guess a more conventional superhero kind of story. Uh, mm-hmm. But this was maybe the first book that really leaned into the idea of you know of Bat. Again, the, it might be more due to the visual aspect of it, but it felt like it was something that leaned into the idea of Batman as a detective, right? As yeah. a noir. Actually, now that, now that I look up uh, No Man's Land, No Man's Land was a couple years after this. Okay. Okay. So again, I don't I'm I don't know in terms of placement of time where other Batman stories were relative to this, but it 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 felt like it was something serious uh, and more grown up and in large part because it was just visually different from what we had been accustomed to with other Batman stories, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess in that sense it's original, but... Uh, I still think it owes a lot to Batman Year One. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's you can trace definitely the- a substantially better take on this idea. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can trace the DNA of this comic to Batman Year One. I mean, The Long Halloween is one of those stories that's supposed to take place early on in Batman's career. Yeah, there are a bunch of those. <laughs> yeah, and it's also a story that tries to 
be more of this grounded street level type of story where Batman is dealing with gangsters and mobsters, even though there are a lot of appearances from his rogues gallery. It's strange to think about it, but for a story that takes place super early in Batman's career, there are actually a lot of supervillains that are already active in Gotham City, and it feels like he's already got a good amount of familiarity with them. Yeah. So you you get characters like the Scarecrow and the Mad Hatter, Solomon Grundy, Poison Ivy, Catwoman has a big role in this, Mm. the Joker is in this, the Riddler. So it's another one of those things that Jeff Loeb likes to do that I guess he starts in this book, which is to have the hero uh, face down kind of this greatest hits of all his villains throughout the course of the story. Yeah, it, he he takes his heroes and he puts them in a gauntlet of of his, like you said, of his greatest villains. And underneath it all, behind it all, there's a mastermind orchestrating everything. Yeah, there's <laughs> always some kind of mystery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, okay, so this is one of those things that maybe it's original but as a as jeff Loeb's career uh progressed forward and as he began to do more output we began to see that he was just kind of he was just doing the same thing over and over again yeah so it it it's definitely for me at least a thing where as more of his work came out and as I read more of his later works, it just tainted the earlier works for me because it just made it glaringly obvious just how much of a one-trick horse he was. Right, right. Yeah. So it's it's the one... Yeah, it's, it's an example of where he might have been in a vacuum... In a vacuum... And uh, in terms of, like the first work he put maybe it was more original uh, mm-hmm. but as time went on it just became glaringly clear that it was really not that original especially relative to everything else he had done and and it's like you said even even on its own uh when you take the idea of it and you compare it to something like Batman Year One, you're absolutely right. Batman Year One is probably the height of that kind of story being done. And when you compare those two side by side, they just don't stand up to muster. Or it doesn't the stand up Halloween to muster. Halloween doesn't stand up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell, I think, I think Jeff Loeb patterned Batman's dialogue and his inner narration after Frank Miller's writing in Batman Year One. The tone yeah. of it, it just... Yeah, it really owes a lot to Batman Year One. One thing that I do want to praise in terms of its originality, though, is Tim Sale's artwork. Because I think he really begins to come into his own on this series. Like you said earlier, he had been pretty active in comics for quite some time. Definitely at least since the the late 80s. I don't remember exactly uh, what year his first published works came out. 
but I, I, in the years since discovering the long Halloween, I did go and explore a lot of his, uh, his bibliography and try to track down his, his earlier works too. And things, things that he did like Billy 99 and some of his Grendel comics, like they all look pretty good too. But I think once he started on Batman, the long Halloween, I I felt like his art really starts to, to crystallize into what I typically think of when I think of Tim sale today, Mm -hmm. a lot of his earlier work to me, at least from what I remember, I don't have any of it uh, at hand at this moment, but from just from my memory, I would say his earlier work seems like a mishmash of his influences. And I'm, I don't know exactly who his most influential artists are, but I'm guessing it was a lot of 80s black and white boom artists. Like, you know, that period when the black and white boom was happening in comics. And right. uh, so I'm thinking of maybe guys like Dean Motter or Dave Sim or even Matt Wagner. Like I can kind of see like those guys in Tim Sale's art. And then when you get into the the 90s and the mid 90s, I remember at one point Tim Sale actually drew a few issues of Jim Lee's death blow for image in the early 90s. <laughs> Do you remember that? I, I don't actually, but that sounds... It like sounds like the, an interesting death blow. <laughs> yeah, like the weird thing is, is that his death blow, it didn't look like his usual other work. It kind of looked like Tim Sale was trying to channel both Jim Lee and Frank Miller's Sin City style. Like there was a lot of negative space, a lot of just stark black and white contrast. Like it it was interesting. And they were like crazy muscles and stuff. They had crazy <laughs> muscles. Right. So, yeah, it, it was it was an interesting thing to look at. So by the time he got to the long Halloween, I, I think he really uh, started to become the Tim Sale that I that most people think of today when they think of Tim Sale. Like I, mm-hmm. I I still think that after the long Halloween he would continue to go on and do even better work. But this I think it'd be fair to say is probably his breakout series. Yeah. The one thing about the art in in this book that I'm not super fond of is probably just his musculature, especially on Batman in particular. It looks a little bit off-putting to me. Oh. I don't know if uh, it was something you noticed as you were rereading it, but I kept seeing how he would draw Batman's torso and, and just all the muscles and like his six pack, you, you, you know, you would see it all this definition through his costume. I mean, he's also drawn as like this beefy guy where he's got like really muscular arms and stuff which which is fine i guess but i think the distracting thing was seeing his his abs and and his six-pack through his clothes all the the time yeah Yeah. that was that was a little bit uh i'm not too personally fond of it but Hmm. i think he's i think tim sale's great at drawing regular people and drawing conversations Hmm. the just the way that he's able to convey through body language, a lot of the stuff that's being unsaid, a lot of the emotions that are left unsaid. You know, he his art is what really helps sell the story and, and lend it this weight that I don't think it would actually have if a different or a lesser artist were drawing it. Yeah. The supervillains have this idiosyncratic appeal. Like they're they're all drawn in this 
kind of exaggerated way, but somehow they still kind of fit in with the world that he's established where you have normal people like James Gordon and uh, Harvey Dent. You know, they look like pretty normal, regular, realistic people. But then you have someone like the Joker, like his teeth take up half his face, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the Scarecrow is really spinely. It's it's so, it looks so weird, but for some reason it it just works. Like even though they're not necessarily realistic, they they fit in that world. And I think it, it still looks good. Tim Sale just I, does amazing things with shadows and light. Yeah, yeah. I I do admit I I like how he draws Poison Ivy too. Just the way that she's mm-hmm. just got all these leaves and vines and shrubs coming out of her. There's there's uh something neat looking about just all all those little details, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally, man, totally. Yeah, yeah. Tim, like in terms of the craft, Tim Sale is definitely. Uh, holding up more than his fair share of weight in this book, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like so much so that, like you said, for the longest time, it, yeah, I guess I'd say that it probably deceived me into believing that it was a better book than it actually was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's really no other way to put it. Do you want to examine the craft of the series? What do you, you mean, still like, have anything more to say about the originality? Uh. Yeah, let's jump into the craft of it. Let's let's go into I mean, it's it seems like we by discussing uh, you know, Tim Sale's art, we've we've opened the door for it. So let's yeah, let's get into it a bit, you know. You know, we've talked about Tim Sale, uh, but you can't look at the book without looking at Jeff Loeb's influence on it and uh yeah, like I don't even know where to begin, <laughs> you know. I can uh, try. Yeah. By all means, shoot for it. Okay, so I th- I would say that this book tries to be a mystery, but it's more style than substance. It tries to ape the tone of film noir and crime stories and insert Batman into that world uh, and those kind of settings. But here's one of my problems with the story. So first and foremost, it purports itself to be a mystery, but it breaks the rules of solid mystery storytelling. It cheats the reader with a twist ending that makes no sense. But even the journey itself has a lot of problems. So here, here's an example. It's a first-person story told from Batman's point of view. Mm-hmm. We're privy to his inner narration, but we're constantly presented with scenes that Batman has no idea is happening. And maybe that's okay in a comic where you know you'll have a scene where we have Batman's narration as he's uh, doing something and then we go somewhere else and we see what these other mobsters are doing on their own time. But the strange thing is, is that a lot of these other scenes also have narrative captions and they're not narrative captions in the sense where Batman is telling you what's happening, but they're just captions that establish the location and the characters. But the the weird thing about them is that they're lettered in the same style as Batman's narration. So as I was reading it, I was paying attention to that. And it's either really bad writing or just a really bad job of lettering. Mm. I'm not sure whose fault that is. Like Richard Starkings and Comicraft lettered it. So, it, you know, he's somebody that has lettered like hundreds or thousands of comics at this point. So I would assume that he would know better than to do something that confusing. 
So mm. I, I would, my guess is that Jeff Loeb didn't make a distinction in terms of like who was who who was narrating those captions, even though those captions are just brief. Uh, they're just establishing locations and names, right? But why would you do that with the same font and the same caption color yeah. Yeah. that you use when Batman is narrating the story? Just from a common sense perspective, that's not how you tell a story. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you truly understood the the medium of like comics as a fusion of art and words and, you know, sequential storytelling, then you should know that you, from the perspective of the reader, you want to make it as unconfusing or not confusing as possible right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know there you, there are just details that you have to take in order to make these things defined and clear yeah, yeah. and and you want to be consistent with your point of view absolutely absolutely like if you if we go back to batman year one right like that has first person narration from bruce wayne from batman and narration first person narration from james gordon but they always clearly distinguish those moments because in the scenes that are about Batman, you have his narration in a different font. And when you have, you only see things from that he would be able to experience. And same goes for the James Gordon scenes in year one. You'd only see those scenes that he would experience and he would be giving the narration in a different font than Batman's narration. Yeah. So it, it kind of feels like Jeff Loeb decided oh, yeah, that first person makes it really feel hard-boiled, so I'm going to do that too. But he didn't really think about the fact that telling a first-person story means that you should tell the story from that person's, that character's point of view. Yeah. So it, it, it's like he wants to tell the story from Batman's point of view, but he's also showing the reader all these things that Batman would have no idea about, like all these different scenes of the mobsters getting together, discussing things, things where uh, the Roman is talking to his son in a room. Nobody else should be able to be a witness to that or scenes, even those little uh, holiday killer scenes where you, you get the stuff in, in black and white and you see the gunshots go off and uh, stuff like that. Like that stuff that we we as the reader are privy to, but Batman isn't there for them. So it, it's it's weird to me that it would constantly switch from first person point of view to a point of view where maybe Batman doesn't narrate, but maybe he at least like makes a mention of the names and the locations. It, it's it's just it's a it's mess. sloppy, man. <laughs> it's sloppy. It's really yeah. sloppy. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. there's even a single panel in issue four it's it's really egregious man it contains the only thought balloon in the entire series did you notice that mm -hmm. one uh i didn't notice it at the time but this is something that you've mentioned uh, quite a couple of times in conversations so and when you think about it it yeah it, if you're telling a story where you're establishing that thought balloons aren't a thing and there's just this one scene that has it in the entirety of the story it's a weird uh it's weird juxtaposed against everything else because again as a reader you're just like wait a minute where did that come from right exactly exactly 
It's and, a scene where the Roman and a bunch of other mobsters are on a yacht, and yeah. the Roman has a thought balloon that essentially conveys to the reader that Alberto Falcone, his son, can't be the killer. So it it's essentially Jeff Loeb writing in a red herring to tell the reader that this guy isn't a suspect. Yeah. But yeah. it's the only thought balloon in the entire series. It like just we makes get it all this narration like... from Batman and all of a sudden we yeah. get one thought balloon and it happens to be a red herring, like a really blatant yeah. red herring. It Yeah, exactly. It just feels like Jeff Loeb wrote himself into a corner and he was like, well, this is a mystery and if I'm going to establish, uh, you know, a, this red herring in order to perpetuate the mystery, uh, I, I got to work it into this scene somehow. And instead of finding a clever way to communicate that within the established rules of the storytelling that he's already committed himself to telling. He just mm -hmm. went, I'm just going to have this. Yeah. He's just going to have a thought balloon. I've done what I was meant. To, I'll, I'll have done my job as a writer, you know? It's yeah. That, that is pretty so lazy. lazy. Yeah. 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 I wanted so I, to I think, uh Oh, go ahead, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. So I I think Loeb constantly tries to go out of his way to lay down red herrings, but it rarely yeah. feels like he himself knows what's a real clue. And the telling thing is that near the end of the story, he explicitly has his characters point out the clues and explain what happened, only they don't really make a whole lot of sense. Like the the ending itself, like the final scene with Gilda in particular, that doesn't make sense. And what she has to say about Harvey's hair being wet on New Year's Eve, even though he wore a hat. It's a pretty like, dumb clue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it just boggles the mind how an editor was like, yeah, this is good. Like, yeah, I don't get it, man. It just, what were you going to say? I was going to say that... Well, a couple of things, uh, but in terms of an ending, uh, it just felt like it just felt like a lot of what Jeff Loeb was trying to do was, well, mysteries are about twists, right? So the more twists that I put into this, the better the mystery is. And it just felt it felt like he he had maybe one ending in mind, but he just kept throwing things in there to to just ratchet up the the twist and the shock elements of it. But it's like you said, it didn't really make too much sense uh, after the fact. It, when you step back and look at it, like, the, the clues were pretty weak. And I don't know. Like, what I was going to ask you was, if he had... Do you think it would have made a difference if he had tried not to do all these twists and just committed to one ending? Yeah, I think that would have been much better. Yeah, because right? here's here's one of my principles when it comes to good crime mysteries, and yeah. I say this as somebody who enjoys reading crime mysteries and crime fiction in general. But a good crime story is able to present an ending that feels both surprising and inevitable. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I I know that's a really difficult thing to pull off, mm. but. Because this book sets itself up as a crime and mystery story, 
he sets up his own work to fail against an examination, you know? Like, there's also that scene where Alberto uh, confesses to the murders, but it's not really one of those revelations that makes you as the reader go, oh, dang, now all the pieces fit together. Yeah. You know, it just makes it, you scratch your head. Yeah. Like, it literally felt it like possible? red herring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. Because earlier on in the book, you established that Alberto was shot and that the coroner even had his body. Right. So as far as everyone was concerned, he's dead. But it turns out he wasn't dead. And, you know, <laughs> that's the coroner, why they had to kill the coroner. Yeah, the the coroner. <laughs> Coron whatever. <laughs> the, the morgue dude. <laughs> Dr. Morg. Morgenstein. <laughs> hey, if if you can call it Debris, I'm gonna call it Coroner. I like it. I like it. I, I respect your uh 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 your little tweak there. Well, but that's it's kind of what I was gonna say earlier. I like we we chatted about this um in in our in in the week prior to to this episode coming out, and one of the things that I said was it he kind of reminds me of like an M Night Shyamalan, like like the criticisms that are uh, aimed towards M Night Shyamalan when he was at his worst. He kind of reminds me of that in the sense that Jeff he's Logan a guy. Yeah, in, yeah, in the sense that everyone expects a twist from him or like these these big shocking twists. So he he builds himself up as the guy who makes a twist and the way that he envisions the greatest amount of impact is by just layering twist on top of twist on top of twist and that's that's how he builds his uh his his career on that's what he builds his career on and it's just it's silly, man. Like that's not. You should not be the guy who is known for writing twists. Like if you're gonna. That's a gimmick. It's a gimmick, exactly. If you're gonna tell a story, then be the guy who's good at writing a good mystery, not the guy that came up with twists that you didn't see coming. You know. If you uh, have a really good gimmick, then you should just be a wrestler. Yeah. Or. Well, I yeah, I guess yeah, I would have preferred that Jeff Loeb become a wrestler to uh to a guy who just wrote all these terrible comics. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it's it's a pretty weak Yeah, let's let's talk about those endings a little bit. So, the, there were three I guess three revelations. So the first one being that Alberto Falcone uh, was, you know, holiday. was holiday. And then the second re revelation was, well, oh, it wasn't really Alberto Falcone. He's just kind of taking credit for it. It was actually Harvey Dent, who's, uh, who, uh, whose two-faced persona was beginning to manifest itself. But mm -hmm. before he fully became two-faced... He actually was already in the middle of murdering uh, people. Uh, it was just a sign that he was already unhinged, right? Yeah. And then the third twist on top of that was, well, it wasn't really all Harvey Dent because Harvey Dent was actually trying to 
defend was trying to keep his wife uh hidden because in actuality she was the actual killer <laughs> and it's it's so soap opera-ish and like lame <laughs> you know like i was thinking about that as i was reading it i was like you know what if if it had just been a story where it had been about harvey dent uh slowly manifesting his two-faced personality and it turned out that he was actually the killer uh i I probably would have been no it definitely would have been a better story it would have definitely been less stupid than the the extra epilogue that took two pages at the very end to reveal to you that yeah that gilda dent was actually going out there and shooting all these people it was gilda all along yeah (laughs) and (laughs) harvey dent was just trying to cover it up for her like one i don't know that she would have been nearly as talented with a gun and like some of the murders that took place like these were like gangland styled executions where she was just shooting up entire rooms full of people with a 22.22 yeah it's a it's a fairly low caliber gun and don't forget yeah. There was a period around Thanksgiving when she was hospitalized too. So how yeah. did she pull that off? Yeah, exactly. It's just it's a lot of stuff that Like I we mean, we would have to believe that she she pulled out the the uh all the stuff that was hooked up to her in the hospital and yeah. in her weakened state she somehow was able to to kill those mobsters. Like Yeah. That that that's a little too far fetched. Yeah. And Exactly. There is, uh, in, I want to say, the second or third issue of the story, there's literally a gang of guys. Like, there are four or five of them, I think, and they're, like, eating in a restaurant or something. And she mm-hmm. comes in there with what's essentially just a hand pistol and just, like, kills them all. You know? Yeah. Just with this hand pistol. And it's just, like, the way that she looks, she's just this really meek and tiny and unassuming woman. And I'm not saying that you can't tell a mystery where that person ultimately ends up being the killer, but like you gotta build up to that. Leave us some clues to make that plausible. Otherwise, it's just you know anyone could have been the killer. Alfred could have been the killer at that point. <laughs> you know it was Alfred all along. Yeah, <laughs> the butler did it. <laughs> I would have been more. I would have been happier if Alfred had been the killer. At least we would have been, been able to say the butler did it. Yeah. <laughs> and and here's another thing. I think it is okay to have an ambiguous ending where we don't know for certain who the holiday killer is, but that Gilda scene is a total cheat and to top it off, it's just her spewing a bunch of exposition to the reader yeah. while burning the evidence. Like number 1, she's talking out loud during that whole sequence. Yeah. Who is she talking to? See, I think that's just an example of bad writing. And another example of lazy writing because Loeb wasn't able to present his ambiguous ending without having a, killer, a character literally tell the audience that they won't even know for sure who the killer is. Yeah. Right? Like, instead you, of using subtlety... Well. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Instead of using subtlety or even just being fair and having Batman deduce what's going on, Loeb just throws in these last few pages where a character talks out loud to nobody. Yeah. She <laughs> might as well have gone, Twas me that did it! 
<laughs> who who doth be the killer? Why, it was me! Whoa! <laughs> and here's another Did you dumb see thing. see how bad that is? <laughs> it's pretty bad. But at least if she had said that, it would have been funny. <laughs> here's say? another dumb thing. But if we were to take Gilda's confession at the end of the book at face value, was her motivation for being the holiday killer to get rid of bad guys so she could spend more time with her husband, the district attorney. I'm pretty sure like that, that was the implication of it. Yeah, like that. that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because wouldn't killing a bunch of mobsters that are already suspected of crimes create even more work for him? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not a lawyer. I don't necessarily know a whole ton about criminal law, but it sounds like <laughs> doing that would make more work for the district these, attorney. <laughs> these criminals are all dead. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how the law works. <laughs> no need to investigate. Exactly. That's why most crimes are solved by rampages, murderous rampages. <laughs> yeah. That's how the American judicial system works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh Yeah, it's Here's the, here's another question I have about that one last thing at the end. Do you think that was something he planned out? Or does it feel like it was just a thing where he was like, I just want to throw in this one last twist? Because it really, to me, it felt like that last page, that last couple of pages of epilogue was just, I'm just going to throw this one last thing in there to, like, mess with them. You know? <laughs> That's a good like, question. Right? It just yeah, I don't know. feels so random that it's like, I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, it's I exasperating. It is, it is. It leaves me speechless. Yeah, exactly. Here's another thing that didn't work in the story. So The Long Halloween is built around this storytelling conceit where each issue takes place around a specific holiday. So this is an interesting gimmick thing to choose to do. Yeah. Like, it's it's a, it's a an interesting theme. But the way that Loeb writes, he makes it feel like nothing happens in between the holidays. So the story spans over a year. Like, I think it's actually like 14 or 16 months or something. Mm. But there's not really much sense of character growth or development over that span of time. And there's this whole sequence where uh, Poison Ivy gets Bruce Wayne under her influence for about a month from Valentine's Day to St. Patrick's Day. So, like, that's a pretty significant amount of time to, to control Batman, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, it, and, and you, you do see that Poison Ivy is basically just hanging out at Wayne Mansion. So, number one, I wonder why she wasn't able to figure out that he was Batman after spending so much time with him in his mansion. And yeah. secondly... Where was Alfred for that whole month? Was he just hiding in a closet? <laughs> yeah, she she bound and gagged him and just threw him into a closet. And, you know, I read somewhere <laughs> that butlers don't need food or water. So <laughs> there we go. They're not like people. So like it, it would have made more sense if she had used her powers on Alfred as well. You know, like, why would she just use it on Bruce Wayne and then let Alfred do what he do? Yeah. But then yeah. he didn't do anything. So we're because because nothing happened in between those issues, right? It's like 
it's it's just weird to me that Loeb would tell this story where the only time stuff happens is when it happens on the page. There's nothing that happens off panel or in between. Like even though there's a progression of time, nothing happens during that time. Yeah. It yeah, you're right. It feels like in order to adhere to the rules that he's established for himself of you know with this gimmick he has to just kind of move the story along and ignore reality you know yeah yeah <laughs> or, or just the passage he has to ignore that the passage of time has to work mm-hmm. for these characters and it's just uh, yeah it, it's also, just another example go ahead yeah yeah there's also that that part of the story where Harvey and Gordon suspect Bruce Wayne of being controlled or connected to the to the Falcons. I think yeah. this is like after after uh, he helps them like launder their money at the with, with the bank or something. So so Harvey and Gordon are starting to suspect Bruce Wayne of being in a cahoots with the mob, but they don't do anything about it until the next issue, which means they let over a month go by before they even try to question him. So what the heck? <laughs> Like, uh, again, it's another thing where even though there's a passage of time, Loeb doesn't let anything happen during those times between holidays, even though realistically, if if Harvey and Gordon actually suspected Bruce Wayne of this, why, why would they wait an entire month? Why would they wait until the next holiday to, to approach him? You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a uh, it's just a book where once you begin to deconstruct it, like really look at it with a fine-tooth comb, you just can't help but notice all of the little snags and failures on the part of Loeb to mm-hmm. to tell a competent story, you know? Yeah. What about from an emotional point of view? Was there any emotional content that you were able to grab hold of in this story? Um, no, I can't say that there was. It just, <laughs> okay. it just felt like it was a work that was, again, just fully predicated on the idea of telling a good mystery, which there's nothing wrong with that if, if that's what you're trying to do. If mm-hmm. if he was capable of doing it, there was nothing wrong with that. But as we've pointed out, the mystery that he told was pretty shallow. And then on top of that, at, at least in terms of uh, the emotional content of the work, I I don't know. It's it's hard for me to look at it and maybe I could say that Tim Sale's uh, artwork was emotionally evocative uh in some scenes right but Mm -hmm. in terms of what was actually written uh and what it did for me i i I can't say i felt anything you know yeah yeah Yeah. i I agree with that it's it's like we we know that batman harvey and gordon have a bond but other than that scene where they all agree to join forces there's not a whole lot to cement their relationships with each other. So when Harvey gets the acid splashed on his face, yeah, there isn't really a sense of loss because we never really see Batman truly caring about Harvey other than making 
pithy yeah. statements like I believe in Harvey Dent. Like he yeah, I mean he could say that, he could shout that until he's blue in the face, but you never really see scenes where they actually seem like they care about each other, you know? Yeah. Like we get a couple I, of scenes of Gordon and Harvey and their wives meeting up socially, but there's it just feels like there's such an emotional distance between the characters themselves that it doesn't really feel like there's any reason for us to invest any emotions into their relationships. Exactly. It it's so the thing about it is they're trying to tell this story where uh, if you look at the lore of Batman, if you look at the lore of Batman, a lot of the times what they try to establish is that Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent are friends and uh there's this element of tragedy to it uh to 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 Harvey Dent ultimately becoming Two-Face because mm-hmm. you know, Batman's friend is now one of his worst enemies and that's i feel like that was a nerve that Loeb was trying to strike but it's like you said there was just so much emotional emptiness between these characters one it felt like they really didn't like each other most of the time you know yeah. like if like i i wouldn't even say that Harvey Dent maybe you could say that Harvey Dent didn't like Batman or didn't trust Batman that's fine but even between Harvey Dent and Bruce Wayne, it didn't feel like there was anything about them that particularly liked each other. Or well, if Harvey you told Dent me that they were friends, jumped the gun and thought his friend was in league with the mob. So yeah, and he tried to get Gordon to arrest him. Yeah, if you told me that they were friends, I wouldn't have known it from this book. Yeah, exactly. For sure, you know. So so whatever sense of tragedy he's trying to build up, it's just not there. You know, so when when mm-hmm. when two, Harvey Dent finally does become Two Face, there's there isn't this sense of, oh man, like they were so close. If if he could have just prevented this, or you know, their lives could have been so different. It it you don't get any of that. You know, yeah, it's yeah, just a I thing agree. that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the second Nolan movie, the dark Knight, I think that did a better job than this in depicting the friendship between Batman yeah. and Harvey between yeah. Bruce and Harvey. Like even in that movie, you got the sense that maybe they weren't friends, but they had a respect for each other in terms of what each of them, like you, you got the sense that Bruce Wayne respected Harvey Dent yeah. in terms of, what his goals and aspirations were, you know, yeah. for what he could do to, for the city. Like you got that. And I will say maybe they were trying to, to, to do something like that here. Uh, it's like you said, the, uh, that line that they keep repeating is I believe in Harvey Dent, right. To have Batman mm-hmm. say that, to have Gilda Dent say that it's just this idea, but yeah, the, that second Nolan movie did a better idea of, uh, or did a better job of explaining executing that it. executing that exactly because uh you had the the tragedy of harvey dent being the white knight that they wanted the one who could w- work within the confines of the system to uh bring justice to gotham city and to make the world a, a better place he was the one who could be the face that could uh do right by the city in ways that batman simply couldn't because Batman has to operate in shadows, right? So mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Harvey Dent turns to Two-Face and becomes a killer, 
all the all the worse is the tragedy. But you don't really get that sense here in in the Long Halloween that that's what they're building up to. It's just a couple mm-hmm. of people saying, "I believe in Harvey Dent," and then it's like, "Oh, well, I guess he's a killer now." Yeah, I failed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I failed him. That sucked. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> in terms yeah. of uh, the artwork, again, like the craft of the artwork is what stands out. I, and like we were saying, I, I think sales art lends the story a gravitas that it doesn't necessarily deserve. That it doesn't deserve. I, I, I would say he's able to convey a sense of just a lot of atmosphere and mood with his art, especially with his use of shadows. The shortcomings in the script are somewhat blunted because of his character acting and the facial expressions that he does. But that that's I feel like that's really or uh, I can't really think of what else I can say about his his art here like it, his art he's a good artist man like yeah yeah I, I sure. think if he had been given a better script he would have done wonders and and there is even a part of me that that wonders man what if uh what if we took the basic like if if the if basic Trump idea had just of plotted it <laughs> Yeah, like if you take the basic idea and plot of the Long Halloween, and and uh, you know, let's let's say it's. I mean, I still think the idea itself is fine. The idea of a mystery story that takes place over the course of a year. Yeah. I think that's a solid starting point. You know, like there's nothing inherently stupid about that. Yeah. And uh, you know, let's let's say Tim Sale drew the story the way that we have it now, but Let's also imagine if we just erased all of Jeff Loeb's words and had, you know, like basically like a, a rewrite of it. Would it be, would it, would we be able to make the story make sense if we just rewrote all the dialogue and and narration? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think this idea goes hand in hand with what I was saying earlier, which was like, if you could erase some of the extra twist and just stick to one ending. Mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think it would be a substantially cleaner story to read right like definitely it kind of reminds me of this 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 thing that happened in comics uh a couple of years back um it was it was the story of uh it was this um dc event called millennium and uh they were trying to build up to the fact that there was this mysterious character called monarch right and oh, this was more than a couple years back. Oh yeah, this was like decades back, right? Yeah. <laughs> you so trying to make was... it sound like we were young. <laughs> well, we were kids probably when this came out, but yeah, uh, it's, it's a pretty famous comic book uh, historical anecdote. But what happened was they created this mysterious villain that was uh, orchestrating this thing within the DC universe, and it was a villain by the name of Monarch. And it was going to be revealed that Monarch was Captain Adam. But what ended up happening was that information got leaked. And as a result, uh, DC Comics was like, well, we've already set up all the rules. We've already uh, we've already set up all the clues. We already know that this is where we were going with it. But, uh, you know, we still want the twist. So what did they do? They... They did a last-minute change, and uh, they just switched out the character of Captain Adam for uh, Hawk from Hawk and Dove, 
which was, uh, you know, uh, they they chose him because the book was being canceled anyways, right? Yeah. So they were willing to like get rid of all the stuff that made any sense just for the sake of the twist because they wanted the shock value. Yeah. Because that was more important to them than the story making sense, and it it feels like it's the same thing that that Jeff Loeb. It's the same way that Jeff Loeb works here, where it's just like I'm just gonna. I'm just going to find a way to make more twists because that's what the people want. You know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's, uh, don't do it, Jeff. Just, just, just tell one story. And if it feels, I, I, I'd even go so far as to say, like, if, if people predict the ending before it comes out, like, I don't think that matters as much as preserving the shock of it. Because yeah, exactly. It's just stupid. It's more important been... that the story makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So if they had just told this story and gotten rid of... I, I think they could still keep Alberto Falcone as this guy who was trying to get credit for it. Sure, whatever. Well, no, that was stupid too, but... <laughs> I think the him faking his death seemed pretty impractical. Yeah. If If he had just fallen into the water and there was no body for him, if if... You know, if they hadn't uh, included all the stuff with the coroner, then sure, okay. It, like, if their presumption is he's dead and then it turns out, you know, he was doing all this, fine, right? But don't bend over backwards to try to trick us with all these red herrings just because you you really want the, the shock and the surprise to take us you know, to take us by surprise mm-hmm. because then mm-hmm. you're just bending over backwards to come up with just stupid excuses. Yeah. So, yeah. I I think they could have done so much. Like, maybe that's the thing. Maybe if a really good editor had gotten their hands on it and just, like, hacked out a bunch of the really the dumbest ideas... Maybe just maybe it's it could have been a serviceable story. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I think Archie Goodwin was the editor of this series. So he he was somebody who was pretty well respected, but maybe he yeah. was a little too nice to, to Jeff Loeb. Probably didn't have the heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's... Here's another question, Albert, but I was curious if you had anything to say about it. Do you think that this comic is about anything? Like, is there any worthwhile subtext to think about or discuss? Well, or is well, this purely thing. just superficial? That's the thing. Like, it, you know, like we, we mentioned earlier, um, I, I genuinely believe that this is just Jeff Loeb's attempt at telling... Uh, a Batman of telling a serious Batman story, a serious Batman mystery story. And mm-hmm. in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But because the mystery aspect of it is just so shoddy, when you look for anything else to to give it any sense of substance, it's it just feels extra hollow because not only is there no emotional content, it's also a bad mystery, mm-hmm. you know? 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can't say that... I can't say that it's about anything. I can't say that it made me feel anything. Uh, you might be able to say that it was something that tries to be a tragedy, but we've already established that they did a poor, piss-poor job of establishing the sense of tragedy, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So we don't even get that. Yeah. I don't know. You're right. I agree. Yeah. Do you have any other comments about the craft of this book? Uh, no. I mean, I'm, I I think we can talk about the ability of this story to withstand the test of time. I don't, I don't think there's too much to say there, uh, except, you no, know. No, it does not yeah, withstand the test of time. <laughs> we've established that when we read it, it was, you know, something that uh, we both liked at the we, time. We both liked at the time, and as time went by and as we read it, it just diminished in our eyes, right? Yeah. So, so it clearly doesn't withstand the test of time on that level. But I'd add that uh, in in the context of Jeff Loeb's work, as time goes, uh, as time moves on, and as you look at all. As you as you look at this work in the context of everything else that he's done since then, it I think it diminishes in comparison to those things too. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's an mm-hmm. example where the more he puts out, the worse this particular book looks. You know. Yeah, yeah. A lot of his later books just continue to ape the formula that he established in this one. Yeah, and that's another reason why, like, one of my first thoughts was again of of M night Shyamalan where he just becomes this guy who's just known for this one trick or gimmick and you just see it over and over and over again yeah. to the point where he becomes the gimmick guy, you know, the guy that takes a villain or takes a superhero, puts him through a gauntlet and has like some sort of shadowy mysterious figure orchestrating everything from behind the scenes mm-hmm. only to reveal the big plot twist at the end. It was Agatha all along. Yeah, the big stupid plot twist at the end at that, you know? Uh, like, we we can take any number of his works and we can fit it into the same mold of this story, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. If, if you look at his, uh, his run on the Hulk with the Red Hulk, that whole thing was basically the Hulk fighting a bunch of his villains with a big uh, mystery behind who the Red Hulk was, mm-hmm. you know, and then we get that revelation. And then there's also Ultimatum where, or even uh, Ultimates 3, where, again, the Avengers are put through the ringer, and then there's a big bad who's controlling everything behind the scenes. And it's just, yeah, he's a, he's, he's a one-trick horse, one-trick pony, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, from a from an artistic qualitative level, this definitely doesn't withstand the test of time because the more you scrutinize the more you scrutinize it, the less it holds up. I do think that for someone who's never really read a Batman comic, I think if you if they read this just because they want to try a Batman comic, I think they can still have fun. Uh-huh. It's just that it's just that if you have a if you read it with a critical mind, you're just gonna discover a lot of cheap tricks and poorly constructed storytelling. 
Yeah. So I'd, yeah. I'd say that the artwork is really the only saving grace here. And I don't even think it's Tim Sale's best work. I think he does better work as his career continues after this. Yeah. I, I do think I often have thought, what if Tim Sale would just work with somebody else? Like, it's they've worked together so often at this point where they're almost synonymous with each other. You know, they pretty and much are. Did you know that a yeah. couple months ago they released a long Halloween one shot special? I no, I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, but, I think uh, it was because it was an anniversary or something. But back in, I think it was back around October or I yeah. don't know, late last year they they did a, a special. I mean, it's old enough where a thought that just occurred to me is. You know, comics is known for just mining old stories for uh, material for future stories, right? Mm -hmm. So it would not surprise me if somewhere out there, someone's there's someone who looked at this story, who looked at the Long Halloween as this iconic Batman story, and they're just waiting in the wings to tell some other story that uh reinvigorates it and takes elements of it and reintroduces it to the modern modern dc continuity you know yeah it's 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 just about time for it it's due uh like we see that off like again and again where it's like oh this was a classic story we're gonna take bits and pieces of it and uh try to work it into some making it something for modern yeah. audiences let's remix you know? it yeah exactly so it wouldn't surprise me if that's on the horizon somewhere out there Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you want to move on to Hush? Sure, sure. Let's move on to Batman Hush. So Hush was originally serialized in Batman issues 608 to 619. So it was a 12-issue storyline in the main Batman title. It was published in 2003, 2002 and 2003. So here's the credits. Jeff Loeb was the writer. Jim Lee was the penciler. Scott Williams was the inker. Richard Starkings was the letterer. Alex Sinclair was the colorist. And Bob Shrek was the original editor. Let me ask you the same question that I asked you when we started our discussion on The Long Halloween. I want to know, how did you first discover Hush? How did you feel about it after reading it for the first time? And what have been your thoughts about it in the ensuing years since? Mm -hmm. uh, this one, I'm less, uh, I, I don't remember quite as well how I remember it. I want to say it was probably Wizard as, as well. Um, mm -hmm. It was, this was a book that was even harder to ignore than uh, Long Halloween because this was a book where the big draw of it was Jim Lee, this mega star of the 90s, was coming back to do uh, a mainstream comic book work. Mm -hmm. And so it that that was mainly the big appeal of it. So I uh, I want to say that. Well, no, that definitely caught my attention. Uh, at the time, uh, like, I don't even remember what, what work he had done prior to that. Uh, or, so or like th this was the period where it, it was a couple years after 
DC bought Wildstorm Studios. Uh-huh. So Jim Lee, uh, you know, after after starting his own studio at Image, he kind of sold out, or he not kind of, he literally sold out. Yeah. <laughs> back to the yeah. man, and DC bought up his studio, and he hadn't really done any monthly like a full series like he had since they since dc bought him out he had done a couple of short stories for some of their anthologies here and there uh-huh. even done a couple of uh random pinups and stuff but this was billed as his big return to monthly yeah, comics yeah. yeah and that was that was mostly the draw of it you know mm-hmm. um it was like oh you got jeff Loeb who was just hot off uh a long Halloween, and you got Jim Lee, this megastar, and not only are they doing a, a Batman story, this was an in-continuity Batman story. This was, mm-hmm. you know, them doing Batman in the regular universe, so there's no way that you could look at this story and be like, oh, this is just a alternate universe story or alternate history story or whatever. This yeah. is... This this happened! This happened, yeah. Drew! <laughs> This was real. <laughs> it's real. It's real, Drew. It's real. It really happened. Um, did you read this as it was being serialized? I don't think I did. Uh, I, it was definitely another case where um, I read it. So this particular book, I remember waiting for it to come out. Um before I read it. So I think the first time I finally read it uh, in its entirety was uh, when the library had it. I eventually got it from the library and I read it and I was, uh, yeah, I'll admit at the time, uh, again, uh, like I was high on it. Uh, There was, (laughs) there was one thing in particular about it that I guess that, excited me at the time was oh can i guess what it was yeah sure by all means go was it catwoman's boobs <laughs> uh that in, indeed it was I, I was a horny little bugger and <laughs> the idea of jim lee boobs was uh that was what drove me to 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 read this book i i didn't even realize that there were words in the book until like six months after i had bought it uh, like I, I was shocked. I was like, "Wait, there's dialogue in here." <laughs> no, no. Um, do you, you want to keep guessing or? Okay, okay. Was it the huntress's boobs? <laughs> <laughs> Suffice it to say, Jim Lee draws great boobs. <laughs> no. Uh, the one thing that I was. Uh, excited about with this book uh, and this was this was definitely something that I read from Wizard but uh, they kept talking about the Batman-Superman fight in the book mm. and I think up to this point the only version of this we ever saw was Dark Knight Returns that that might have been like the most popular version of it there, there might be some random comic where they fought out there but uh, up to this point you know that was kind of the the thing, uh, the scene that you compared everything else to, right? Every time you see Batman and Superman fight, that was the one that that people automatically thought of. And then yeah. when this came out, people were talking about it like 
well, it's such a great Batman Superman fight, blah blah blah, and and I got caught up in the hype as well. I'll I'll admit that. But you know, uh, speaking of Batman and Superman fights, there was a fight that happened uh, a little bit before this comic came out, but in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Strikes Again, there's a pretty awesome fight between old Batman and old Superman in at the end of the first issue of that miniseries. I think I remember that one. It's the one where uh, he's got like the kryptonite gauntlets and he's just pounding the crap out of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and he gets uh, the help of the Flash and the Atom. So everybody's yeah. just like gang beating Superman. It, it that that's a pretty great comic. And and I will I'm one of those people that genuinely thinks Dark Knight Strikes Again is a good comic, and I'll I will defend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's neither here nor there because uh, we're talking about Hush right now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's 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 a book where at the time, uh, again, this was the period where I was still high on Loeb, and right after, uh, like, I don't remember exactly how long after Long Halloween it, it was, but I remember telling people about this book and you know recommending it. I, I I regret that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yeah it's it's yeah. Anyways, what about you? What did you know about this book uh, when it when it came out? Did you uh, did you read it as it was coming out, or did you read it after the fact? So this was a book that I was reading as it was being serialized. I didn't buy it personally, but. I was a sophomore in college at the time, and I had just gotten f- full swing back into comics freshman year. Like t- towards the tail end of freshman year, basically, is when I started getting really back into comics again. To the point where I I was a Wednesday warrior, you know. Like I would go to the store every Wednesday to to get the new comics off the racks and whatnot. Yeah. So by the time Batman Hush came out, uh, I was already like pretty deeply ingrained back into the habit of of weekly of going to the store every week mm-hmm. and even though i wasn't buying hush myself shanus was buying it so i would just read his copies and uh yeah i mean uh, kind of like what you were saying it was something i enjoyed and, and liked at the time like i I'm embarrassed to admit I was a pretty big Jim Lee fan just because he was one of those artists that I grew up yeah really liking yeah. because I was a fan of X-Men you, you know yeah. he was like he was the definitive X-Men artist of our of our youth yeah so to know that this was billed as his big comeback to to monthly comics it was a pretty big deal you know we hadn't really seen a Jim Lee series in quite some time like even the stuff that he was doing for wildstorm uh in the later 90s it wasn't stuff that i'd paid any attention to you know like like number one it came out during a period when i stopped paying attention to marvel and dc so i certainly wasn't going to pay attention to to like divine right or whatever you know (laughs) i remember that (laughs) so and that was something that came out and i think there were a bunch of delays on that and eventually it just you know fizzled out fizzled out in obscurity but even that was something at the time where i remember people were talking about that like oh this is him doing his own thing <laughs> yeah know? like it's it's his, it's his really uh 
his own creation and all this and you know it's it's yeah i don't think it's something that people really think no about or talk about, about today yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a minor footnote in his in his career yeah so yeah so when hush was coming out that was a, a pretty big thing uh shanus would buy a bunch of comics at the time like he he would buy probably like at least like 10 15 comics every week whereas i would only probably buy like three or four maybe five at the most like i wasn't i had to control myself you know but yeah. but we made sure that we weren't buying the same stuff so yeah, we could yeah, always yeah. read each other's yeah and he he was the one who was buying batman so i was reading his comics but i was still into the the hype of it you know like you would go to the store and talk to the other people there about man did you see what happened in this issue uh you know looks like jason todd has come back or or uh who who do you think is hush you know like you'd have those kind of conversations just kind of geeking out or fanboying out about what was going on and trying to play the guessing game because of the mystery yeah Yeah. so yeah at at the time i really liked it obviously i was into that superman fight just like most everybody else was um when it first got collected it was collected into two separate hardcovers like the first hardcover each hardcover collected six issues yeah yeah yeah. and i remember my roommate at the time who who also read comics with shanus and me he he ended up buying those two hardcovers so so i was always able to like just borrow his and and like flip through it and and reread it so i, I read it a, a bunch it, it became something i was like extremely familiar with Mm-hmm. And then uh, I ended up getting my own copies of it uh, after, even after uh, college. So for for a while, I had my own copies. And you know what? It's just one of those things where as I got older, I sort of grew out of the Jim Lee stuff and yeah. started to, to reread the story from a, a more critical, critical standpoint. Yeah. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that Jeff Loeb, by that point, you know, this I'm talking like maybe around 2006 or 2008, thereabouts. I don't remember when Ultimatum or Ultimates 3 came out, but I think because those comics were so bad, it made me reevaluate all of his other work. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what I think it was? I think it might have even been Catwoman when in Rome. Because that mm. was a book where I was I was pretty excited about it because it was a follow up to Dark Victory. Yeah. But when I read it, I was like, man, this is not as good as I thought it would be. And, yeah. And that I think that was the thing that got me on this path to reevaluating all the works of his that I had liked. So that that was why I, yeah. re- I would read uh, Long Halloween and Dark Victory and Superman for tomorrow uh, for all seasons. Um, he had a string of some pretty bad books, though. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to say, didn't he work on Ultimate Power at that point? Like, I whatever. Think Ultimate it, Power was a co-written series. Like, I know Bendis so, like, had some hand yeah, in that. Yeah, like, I think it was JMS, Jeff Loeb, and Bendis, and they each wrote three series or three issues of the series. I think that's yeah, what it yeah, was. Yeah. And that, yeah, that was not good. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was just a dude who had just a bunch of diminishing returns at this point. 
And yeah, like I said about Long Halloween, as as his career went on, he lived just long enough to become the villain. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like he would have been better off dying. Would it be so bad? <laughs> Would it be so bad? Would we have gotten all those terrible comics? <laughs> you you either live long enough, you either die a hero, or you live long enough to become a villain. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he got that right. <laughs> yeah. So eventually, I I just realized that Hush was not a good comic and. It it didn't have the same appeal to me, and I ended up getting rid of my copies of it. Yeah, yeah. It's um. Yeah, I was kind of curious, uh, but but you you did answer the question. Like Jim Lee was someone who, again, we we grew up with him, so I think I'd wager to say that out of out of the the 90s artists that I can think of, like, at the time, I, I was I was willing to say that Eric Larson and him were probably the best ones. But as time went on, I can honestly say Jim Lee has, his work has not aged well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very of that time period, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, he's... He's joined the rest of them in just being uh, a pretty whatever artist. Uh, I mean, they used to say that what his his work drew sales like crazy sales because he could just draw covers and he yeah. would sell so many books. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, I imagine that it is. I think his name still brings a particular so. kind of fandom to to yeah i think he still stuff. has a lot of fans like yeah. I, I think i think during uh the early part of the pandemic he was he was uh doing these sketches for uh just to help support um random comic star comic book stores like he'd yeah he would put up a sketch on his social media and then people could bid on those sketches and and maybe they were even just like full-on drawings and and then uh, he would just donate those proceeds to to a comic book store. So yeah, like clearly people are willing to spend money on him. And I yeah. don't really pay attention to variant covers and and that nonsense. But I I wouldn't be surprised if his variant covers or whatever covers that he does do end up uh, boosting sales or yeah. becoming yeah. Uh, key issues or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely think among like key collectors or the key collector community. Like a Jim Lee cover probably gets yeah. gets a lot of attention, gets a lot of uh, bids or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You want to go but, into? Yeah, oh, I, I, yeah. I do think that uh, his name was bigger back then than it probably is today. I think. Yeah. I would no, guess. No, it makes sense though. Yeah. Like you know, it's. I, I I'm kind of curious to see if like young like you know, teenagers or kids collecting now really know him or have love for his work, you know? Uh, yeah. Outside of being this historical uh, person or character, uh, yeah. historical comics creator. 
you know? Yeah. Especially because he's not really someone who does a lot of interiors on a regular basis. Yeah. So it like for for us because we grew up in that period when he was at his most prolific, we we read and bought a bunch of his monthly comics whether it was X-Men or his Punisher stuff or you saw Wildcats. his name on everything, man. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, like and anytime I saw a comic with his name on it, I would try to buy it. You know that, like that's why I, was, I got into Wildcats when I was a kid. Yeah, because yeah. it was Jim Lee. But uh, for people that don't have that childhood connection, yeah, I I don't know if if uh, he's still a big draw to uh, you know a younger generation of of readers. Yeah. Certainly by the time that Hush came out, he was a, a pretty big name. Like Yeah, I think it was just a it was a hype fest, you know? It yeah. Was, it was a major hype fest for DC because it was the first time that Jim Lee was drawing a monthly series for them and it happened to be their most popular character. Exactly. Exactly. Like I I don't know what the numbers for those books were, but it wouldn't surprise me if it just was like astronomical in terms of yeah. sales. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Did you uh, want to talk into... about the impact? Yeah, sure. Um, this was, well, I mentioned it earlier uh, in the podcast, but yeah, this was definitely a thing where uh, the incontinuity impact of the story ended up being pretty long lasting that to the point where we would see them uh take ideas from it for years to come and uh just continue to milk it moving forward for for years after it came out and and the 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 long the biggest in in continuity impact that I can think of is um is the fact that they this story teased the return of Jason Todd as a character who who had who who holds a pretty high place in the Batman mythology as being one of the Robins that died and this was uh for the longest time a character that remained dead uh you know mm-hmm. emotional impact and no one had ever tried to revive him for years uh after after his death but by teasing uh the the idea that jason todd was alive they didn't go so the revelation was that the the mysterious villain that was tormenting batman in hush uh this time around he he knew batman's secret identity or at least enough of batman's secret identity and past he knew enough of it where he was going to use uh jason todd's um image as a way of emotionally tormenting batman so he got clayface to take on the image of jason todd and and fight batman basically so they didn't fully commit to bringing him back to life but you know, it was an idea that a lot of people were really foaming at the mouth. Yeah, <laughs> when when it foaming happened, foaming at you the know, mouth like, is right. 
they were just foaming at the mouth at the idea of it when it happened. So much so that uh, years later, not DC would just not yeah, not too long, but eventually DC would just straight up go and bring Jason Todd back to life. Yeah. Uh, and he's been in comics ever since, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's you know the biggest impact that I can think of uh, in in continuity. Uh, I mean, all that other stuff that we said about the long Halloween is just as true here, which is, you know, Jeff Loeb continued to, uh, build a, a name for himself and he, he leveraged it for more work and just, uh, a higher, higher place or higher position in DC and ultimately over at Marvel where mm-hmm. he could mess up their comics you know um and you know jim lee was already at the height of his game uh like i don't know do you think jim lee working on this would ultimately have any like lead him to uh where he is now within the organizational structure of the company uh i don't really know if working on this comic had any direct impact on that i mean he was already the head of Wildstorm, so uh, just him being in that executive role, I would say that has more influence on him being yeah. being a co-publisher and chief creative officer at DC Comics today. Yeah. So would you say there was any impact, um, you know, from Jim Lee doing this? Because yeah, like we established, he was already, you know, at the height of his. Career at this point, or your yeah. not career popularity, you're right, right. Yeah. So, I, I like, I think after this, he worked on what super, uh, yeah, Superman for all, not Superman for, uh, for tomorrow. So, for yeah, Superman for tomorrow, that was, yeah, that one the, was written by Brian Azzarello, yeah. But after that, like, I, I don't remember seeing him on too many other things, you know, uh, you yeah. know. Maybe the occasional cover or projects. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, of course there was a bat all-star Batman and Robin. Oh yeah. 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 Boy wonder. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. But in terms of think of any other uh, impacts. Yeah. In terms of impact with, with uh, Jim Lee, I, I think it did establish that, they could that DC could have a, a massive sales juggernaut just from having a big name artist on the book. That's true. and I, I I think that uh, the sales success of the monthly format had a lot of people talking too. So the conversation around the book, especially at the time, it it definitely felt like an event. You know, like. I think in recent years, if we're talking about what is a what's a comic that had a bunch of people talking about it after a new issue dropped, the only thing that really comes to mind would be something like House of X Powers of Ten. Like that was the last time I can remember where something came out and every week people were like, dude, did you read this? And or what do you think is gonna happen now? Or I can't believe Hickman did that. And uh, it was kind of like that with Hush when Hush was coming out. Because I, I definitely remember 
being at the store and, and just talking to like people I didn't even know, you know, just other customers. And we would all just be theorizing or speculating on what was going to happen. So I don't, I don't even know if like that's a very important, but uh, I guess that that's the context in which I remember the book from a monthly standpoint. I, <laughs> I will say that uh, one of the other big impacts that it had was it's, it's just become another staple in DC's library. Like this mm-hmm. book is continually in print and it's, Again, they try to market it as one of the evergreen Batman comics. You know, it's something that yeah. they recommend to to anybody who who just wants a good Batman comic, or anyone who wants to learn about Batman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To the point where they've even again they've made another. It's another one where they've made an animated movie yeah. adaptation of it. I was um, gonna. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna ask. Uh, so you you might remember this better than I did, but. Do you remember when they did that Superman with Michael Turner? Yeah. Was that after this? You're, you're, are you thinking of the the Superman story that he wrote, or are you thinking about Superman Batman that he drew I'm, with for Jeff Loeb? Uh, I mean, there was wasn't there one with Joe Kelly? Yeah. Um, he he co-wrote a short arc with I believe it was Joe Kelly in in the Superman books. But he didn't draw it. Uh, you mean Michael Turner didn't draw it, or Michael Turner co-wrote the story. He did not draw okay, it. Okay. But he uh, he did draw a Superman Batman story for Jeff Loeb. I do remember that. That one was the one about Supergirl, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I I wonder if that was another thing where they tried to get one of those big names. On a on yeah well I guess there we go right I mean, the fact that Jeff Loeb was working with this guy who is conventionally uh, beloved by the, the comics community mm-hmm. yeah it was just another example where they were like oh we're just gonna recreate this formula um, yeah but yeah like those books definitely didn't last or didn't nearly have as much lasting power as something like hush right but you could yeah but that's i I do think that's another sign of their impact in the sense that they just continued to keep pumping out books like that where they were just taking these well-known uh 90s artists and just trying to get them to you know uh create this sales juggernaut with Mm -hmm. jeff Loeb at the helm you know yeah you know what else i think it might have helped popularize was the idea of of artists jumping on f- to a series to do these short runs. Yeah, exactly. Like in- instead of exactly. instead of having an artist come on board to be the ongoing artist for an indefinite period of time, it would just be like, here's this six guy issues. coming on for a six issue story or a twelve yeah. issue story. You know, like yeah. And you know, they try to sell that as kind of a yeah. of a kind of a big deal. Yeah, I want to say. I don't think it happened quite the same at Marvel. I don't think Mar- like I think Marvel tried to get their own guys by getting like David Finch, but yeah, but that might have been the only one that I could think of because I'm pretty sure Marvel stayed away or like not stayed away, but I I don't remember them. Well, here's the thing. I, I think those. I think if we actually took the time to look at what was 
what they were putting out. I think we could we could figure it out, but I just can't say off the top of my head, you know, like this yeah, is yeah, something yeah. that I would have to look at. Yeah. I'd have to really remind myself what books That's were coming fair. out. That's fair. Yeah. You you mentioned uh the formula earlier though, the formula of, of uh you know putting a big name artist on on the book for a run to you know just to generate hype. But yeah. I think another part of the formula that tried to that people tried to replicate with was that uh not not the creative aspect not in terms of the creators making the comic, but I think people tried to replicate the hush formula with other comic book <laughs> superheroes by yeah. doing stories where the hero would go against a gauntlet of his rogues yeah. gallery. And I, the most notable and explicit attempts were probably Mark Miller and the Dodsons on Marvel Knights Spider-Man, which was also yeah. a 12-issue series where Spider-Man went through uh, his rogues gallery. And another, yeah. one, another example was uh, Robert Kirkman on Captain America. Even though that story was shorter story i think it was yeah. only about four issues i remember in interviews at the time he explicitly said that he was trying to do captain america's hush <laughs> but in fewer issues yeah <laughs> yeah no it's true we would see that uh which is in retrospect it's a pretty lame thing to want to copy you know yeah yeah it's a really lame thing to want to copy it's like Jeff Loeb would ultimately copy himself into <laughs> into just meaninglessness. Do I really want somebody else copying that formula? I I don't, you know. No sir, no sir. Yeah. I guess yeah. in terms of other impacts, only thing the only other thing I could think of is that Hush ended up becoming a regular member of the Rogues Gallery. Oh yeah, that too. Thomas Elliot ultimately uh takes on the role of hush and uh yeah so yeah but, uh, that's really all there is to say to, about it he sucks <laughs> 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 i thought i had more to say but he's I, he's just he's a lame character it's it's yeah yeah i don't i don't think people uphold hush as highly as they do the long halloween especially from an artistic or a literary standpoint but Hush is still one of those books, man, that's con- consistently in print and yeah. still considered one of Batman's evergreen titles by a lot of people. Well, the, okay, so here's the thing, and I guess this goes into the conversation about the craft of it, but, like, Jim Lee is definitely not Tim Sale, right? Right. And uh, we mentioned that Tim Sale, what he brings to it is the sense of gravitas, but... Where Jim Lee lacks the gravitas, what he uh, brings is sensationalism, right? It's the yeah. idea that he's this rock star, uh, super mega artist uh, who draws in in just like peak 90s superhero style. So it he draws was, a lot of spectacle. Yeah, yeah, and it was it's a style that is geared towards you're less aspirational comic book fans. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe it's more quote unquote accessible, but, mm-hmm. but the people that do love it tend to be like, I feel like hush is a comic book where when I think of comics that are traditionally 
like if I was to if I was to meet someone who never read a comic book and if I was to show them uh, a comic that kind of summed up their idea of what they think of comic book fans, uh, you know, just based on their peripheral knowledge of what comic book fans are about, I feel mm-hmm. like Hush would be would pretty much check all those boxes, um, you know. It's it's in the sense that I would take the long Halloween and I would try to show it to people and be like, see, this is something serious. This is a quote unquote serious Batman story. Hush would just be like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, probably their version of a superhero story done right. Right. Or whatever. Just, uh, uh-huh. you know. Just the best version of it being a superhero story, despite the fact that it's a terrible superhero story, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's the kind of thing where I could show this to someone who who's never read a comic book, and they would just be like, "Oh yeah, that's kind of what I imagine superhero comics to be like." That's a good point. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I can but, see that. Uh, but I would not recommend this to anyone who's never read a Batman story. <laughs> <laughs> I did at the time, but in retrospect, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I definitely recommended people the Long Halloween at the yeah. time. I don't remember if I recommended Hush to other people. Yeah. What do you have to say about the originality of Hush? Well, this was definitely something that wasn't original because it's Jeff Loeb just cribbing himself at this point, right? Yeah. So we didn't really tell the story of Hush, but... In brief, it's a story about Batman, the modern Batman, who goes off and uh, he realizes. They even say it several times in, over the course of the story. Someone is che- someone who has intimate knowledge of Bruce Wayne and Batman is taking his villains and teaching them new tactics and tricks to and ways to harm Batman in ways that mm-hmm. they've never quote. Quote unquote, in ways that they've never done before. So mm-hmm. whoever this mastermind is is like really trying to get at Batman with the use of his other villains. And you know, having read this, I I don't even know what different ways that they're talking about, other than the fact that they keep saying that my my villains are trying to attack me in ways that they've never done before. And I like yeah, I mean, about you, it now you, you've never seen about? Killer Croc hit so hard before. Yeah, they made it sound like. Killer Croc is now going to uh, get his CPA so that he can uh, use tax code to really mess up Batman. He, he's going to get Bruce Wayne arrested on tax evasion. Exactly. That's that's what, Killer Croc is now an accountant, and that's what he's going to do. That's that's what it made it sound like. But Dude, really, I would totally read the crap out of that comic. <laughs> I would totally read that. I would have preferred that, right? It's like, oh, uh, what's Mad Hatter going to do? Mad Hatter is going to, instead of going directly at Batman, what's, what he's going to do is he's going to take his butt hairs and put it in Batman's, uh, in Bruce Wayne's uh, uh, mail every day because he hopes to give Batman herpes. <laughs> what a trick! I bet Bruce Wayne didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, And uh, Solomon Grundy is going to pube Bruce Wayne's soap. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> diabolical. 
<laughs> right? Like, like, it made it seem like ultimately what they weren't doing was they were just trying to beat the crap out of Batman. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah, stupid. It's hard for me to say if there's anything particularly original about Hush. I, yeah. I guess... I, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I don't... I really don't have anything to say about that. It's not. Like, it, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's not. It's just not original. It's not even original... Uh, it's definitely not original for a lobe work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let, let's uh, examine the craft of the story. So, f- first of all, I definitely think that Jim Lee's art is the selling point. I mean, he even though Loeb was pretty big name too at the time i think we've established that jim lee is the you know the the superstar that really makes this significant really it was just a chance for one of the most popular artists of all time to draw as much of the batman mythos as possible yeah yeah and uh just to talk about his art oh did you want to say something No, no 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 i was just um agreeing in solidarity with you Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, to talk about his art a little bit, I will say when I think of Jim Lee's style, he he's someone who loves drawing splash pages and fight scenes. Yeah. I would say he's not very good at drawing conversations or scenes that don't involve capes and fighting. Like the thing with Jim Lee's art, I would say that his figures feel posed Right? Yeah. Like when you look at how he draws people, they just feel like it feels like they're posing. Yeah. Whereas when you look at a different artist, like let's just go back to Tim Sale since we were talking about him earlier. Tim Sale's figures, they still feel like actors, you know, like Tim Sale's figures, they, they the way that he draws them and, and has them, you know, leaning part of their body weight on something on, you know, one side of their body to indicate you know, just some kind of emotion, like, or whatever it may be, or just, just, uh, their facial expressions, his, his characters feel like actors. The thing about Jim Lee is, is that everybody he draws when, especially when they're not fighting, they just, or even just trying to pose in this moody way, like for a poster, when he's just drawing like smaller panels and, and, uh, depicting those in between moments, it it really feels unnatural. It it doesn't suit his strengths. I don't think he's really I don't I don't even know if he really cares about those kind of scenes, you know, like it, it feels like the money scenes are the ones that he truly devotes a lot of his attention to. Yeah. To to his credit, I will say that even even today rereading uh Hush I, th- I do think his action poses can be pretty dynamic and his, uh-huh. his action scenes, his fight scenes generally have pretty good composition. Mm-hmm. Like the, the thing about his fight scenes that I think stands out is he can really capture the moment of impact in a panel. Like when, whenever there's an action, whether it's Batman punching Superman or Batman kicking somebody or whatever, Whatever the moment of impact is, I, f- I think I would say he does a good job of capturing that moment. Yeah. Like, that's not necessarily something I always prefer. I mean, because I think, I think personally, I, I prefer comic book art that's able to convey a sense of motion. 
So even though he's able to convey a sense of impact, I think it still looks posed, you know? Like, he's good at drawing posing figures, but he's not great at drawing motion in a single drawing. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of the artists that that do a good job using body language to tell a story, like, there, there's something... I don't know. That That's just something I appreciate a lot more than just seeing a lot of poses. And and yeah. I don't know, the, the hatching, the excessive hatching and the the exaggerated musculature, like, that, that's something I can live without, too. But, yeah, you know, I, I can comprehend why his style appeals to a lot of people. I just it, it's just not one that appeals to me now. You know, like, I, yeah. again, you know, I liked his art a lot when I was a kid. I grew up reading his stuff. Sometimes I, you know, I still have some of his older stuff from the '90s. Like I still have, I still have all of his Wildcats comics in a box somewhere, and I, I think I still have his X-Men comics somewhere too, or at least a chunk of his X-Men comics. Yeah. And I, I can pull them out and and enjoy them just for the nostalgia. But in my heart, I know, yeah, this isn't what I think Good. of when I think of <laughs> great comics. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought of something actually, and and I I think it does tie into his impact. I mean, mm-hmm. you you might be able to uh, like to go back to the point of uh, the impact of Jim Lee working on this book, and uh, you know it might go back to there might be some debate as to whether this had more to do with him being uh you know a chief you know being so high up within the executive uh or the administrative team uh, over at DC. But when the new 52 and all that stuff happened, like mm-hmm. one of the big things was Jim Lee was yeah. working on the justice, uh, the justice league at the time. And That's when true. they and, redesigned and he also, everyone, he also redesigned a bunch of costumes. Exactly. He like, it was basically his aesthetic that redesigned the, the, the core like DC team. Uh, the the core Justice League team, you know. That's why we had Superman wearing a costume that had little plates of armor. <laughs> yeah, and that's why everybody had those like military collars. Why Superman didn't have a uh, uh, underwear on the outside. Yeah, uh, this looks so bad. Or yeah, like everyone just kind of had the same thing. Like I don't I don't know if that was something that was directly tied to the fact that. Jim Lee had established himself as as this you know this juggernaut that could still draw in uh uh sales, but like it wouldn't surprise me if that was something that they took into account where they were like, well, Jim Lee is such a popular guy, we're just gonna have him redesign the entire DC universe for us, basically. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a pretty big impact because. That's that true. was a terrible era of comics and, yeah, and looks. Yeah, it really was. You know, that I'm version of Superman. That. that version of Superman with the 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 new Fifty Two Superman armor was like so stupid, so stupid. Yeah. You know. Uh, and then yeah, like Aquaman had the same thing and had the little. They all had those like little military collars, like Aquaman, Green Lantern, uh. Like, uh, Cyborg didn't, did su- didn't Superman have it too? Yeah, Superman had it too. Uh, Cyborg was just, I don't know, just kind of, uh, maybe you could say he was the one that changed the least out of all of them. He had a bunch of, like, weird tech stuff that 
the you know cyborg didn't necessarily have in in previous incarnations but mm-hmm. he was so bad that was that was bad that was terrible redesigns on his part man yeah yeah that was a pretty bad story too i remember reading that war was terrible mm-hmm. so yeah that might make a that might be another thing that makes it onto our dishonorable mentions. <laughs> I had forgotten up until this moment that that even existed. Like we yeah. moved past that point in comics where that entire era was just like I still know it's bad, but maybe it's like it was so bad that I just buried it within my subconscious. <laughs> you bla- you blacked it out of your memory, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but going back to Jim Lee's art, I I will give him credit for uh, the flashback scenes that he drew, or well, not only him, but with you know Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair, because the the flashback scenes in Hush they have this kind of sketchy watercolor style, and it, yeah. it's something a little different from what we typically see from Jim Lee, and I'd even say that's probably better than his usual style. I, I think I think uh, it's more interesting. Yeah, I I give him I give him some respect for that you know yeah another thing about the art is that uh, i i also think that alex and claire's coloring is pretty outstanding for a superhero comic especially if you don't mind red skies <laughs> like there's that one issue when they fight jason todd where the sky is red and it just right. struck me reading it this time around i don't know what i thought in the previous times i read it but this time around for some reason the, those red skies were like just jumping out at me it's like i don't think of like the only time I've ever seen a sky red like that was that one time, uh, you know, a, like a year and a half ago when those fires were just raging out of control and they, you know, they literally covered San Francisco yeah. with all the smoke yeah. and it was like eleven o'clock in the morning, twelve noon, like it was like that for a day. Oh, yeah, like the say. entire day, the the sky was red. It was like nighttime. That was that was pretty freaky. Yeah. I re- <laughs> side story. I remember sending a, a picture of it to my friend in New York and my friend in New York was like, Oh, it's so pretty. But in my mind, I was like, <laughs> the sky is on fire. This is not normal. <laughs> I was like, this is, I'm not sharing this with you to be like, this isn't this beautiful. This is like, <laughs> I'm like genuinely worried that the city's going to burn down. <laughs> Did your friend just think it was a filter or something? Uh, I don't know if she thought it was a filter, but she just, she didn't ask about anything like that. She just thought it was pretty, you know? <laughs> I was just like, you're not, if you lived here, if you were like in this right now, I'm pretty sure there'd be a sense of foreboding about this whole entire situation, you know? Maybe she's a pyromaniac. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> oh, man. Do you think that the basic plot and idea of Hush is good? Or do you think that uh, the weaknesses of Hush are just a problem of execution? No, like, I think at least with uh, um, The Long Halloween, that was kind of Loeb's earlier stuff. And you could kind of, you could look at that on its own. And again, without any exposure to anything else, you could have been like, okay, I get this. This is him trying to do a serious Batman story, right? But with this, after having, especially after having read uh, The Long Halloween, it's like, 
once you think about it, there's there's nothing original about this, and, and it's yeah. not even about the execution. It's just it's literally just Jeff Loeb retreading uh, the same idea. It just so happens that he's not doing it in this quote unquote gritty style. He's just doing it in this loud action superhero style. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's very spectacle oriented. Yeah, and there's just nothing about that that uh, I, I suppose you could say that the fact that they brought um, Jason Todd back just points to it, it. It just points to the idea of how much spectacle can we can we bring to this comic, right? Um, yeah, they're just thirsting for people to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Like we're just gonna keep. So whereas with I, I'm not gonna say that Hush didn't have the same problem with the twist. There's stuff where there are twists going on here uh that are also pretty stupid, but mm-hmm. it, it felt like in order they were also trying to again meet they were also trying to aim for the spectacle of it all too. So they were like, Well, how do we do that? Oh, we're gonna have him fight Superman. We're gonna and you know it's gonna be this badass battle between these two like titans of the DC universe. And then on top of that, we're gonna you know tease at the idea that Jason Todd is back, Batman's greatest failure, and Jason Todd is back. Oh man, isn't that shocking? Blah blah blah. And it's it yeah, it just all felt like a lot of artificially generated. it, it it's clickbait man it just feels like clickbait uh-huh. you know? yeah so it's it's even less original than the long halloween and it's even less and the fact that once it becomes transparent what they're trying to do with uh like how they're trying to capture your attention with um you know all, all this all these gimmicks or whatever it's it's it just makes it even less special it, it makes it less interesting I yawn yeah. at that. I yawn at the idea of that. Yeah. You know? I want to ask you a little bit about that Superman fight, since you brought it up a couple times already. But what are your thoughts on it now? Like, is that a sequence that... Is that a highlight? Or is that just something that doesn't make sense to you? Um, It, it doesn't make sense to me after rereading it. Because... It really was an example of Jeff Loeb wanting to have his cake and eat it too. So mm-hmm. he wanted to tell a story where Batman and Superman would fight, and uh, he wanted it to be uh, a genuine fight between these two characters, right? But realistically speaking, the the two characters have no real reason to fight each other. So the way that he writes it into the story is, oh, um, Poison Ivy uses her vines that are laced with some sort of kryptonite to take control of Superman. And even though Superman's uh, under his control, there are still vestiges of his uh, character and personality that beneath the surface overpower and overwhelm uh, the, the, the core um, controlling mechanism of the, the plant chemicals mm-hmm. that are controlling him. Right. So mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's just under the, the power of mind control enough to fight Batman, but he's he has just enough self control where he doesn't just crush Superman uh, Batman's head like a grape <laughs> in like an instant. 
you know? So, so that's not believable to you? You think that if Poison Ivy used her powers on Superman, he should be completely enslaved to her will? Yeah, I, like, I... I don't see what the point of that is other than to tell a story where I want them to, to, other than to have Jeff Loeb tell a story where I want them to fight and I want them to, to, to fight as quote unquote real as possible. But, you know, it, it still has to be within the uh, confines of how they'd really act. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you get Superman to genuinely fight Batman but without stepping out of character, essentially. And that's, I don't know, that's, it's just such a stupid thing to to want to set up, you know? I guess and, you could make the argument that Superman's will is so strong that the mere sight of Lois in danger is enough to enable him to completely break Poison Ivy's control. But even then, even before that, uh, like there's there's bits of dialogue in it where Batman's talk, uh, you know, he's doing his inter internal monologue where he talks about how he's fighting uh, Superman and he says something to the effect of, "Oh, well, I, that's I, have the it, thing. I have it, man, I have it. Yeah, I'm open. I've got it open to that page." But he says, or he's thinking, if Clark wanted to, he could use his super speed and squish me into the cement. But I know how he thinks, even more than the kryptonite. He's got one big weakness. Deep down, Clark's essentially a good person. And deep down, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just such posing. It's just such posturing on his part, you know, on Jeff Loeb's <laughs> part. And it's just, it's like, like, yeah, again, like if if he was truly under the the, the power of Poison Ivy's mind control, I'm pretty sure he would have just flown through Batman's chest and that would have been it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, he should have just been a stain. Like, there there, there shouldn't have been any sort of uh, uh, build-up to that or any, any chance, but whatever. Uh, it's... That's... It's... That's the thing about... Uh, a hush uh, that's different from the long Halloween, in my opinion, is whereas you can make the argument that the long Halloween was for, uh, you know, pretentious comic book readers. I mm -hmm. think you could make the argument that hush was for the fanboys. Oh yeah, absolutely. No doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and maybe the fact that it just, uh, appeals so much to the sensibility of fanboys. Maybe that's something that just makes me hate it that much more. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I, I don't begrudge yeah. you that point of view at all. Yeah. I was also going to say, since I'm just flipping through that scene where uh, Batman and Superman are fighting uh, in the sewers, going back to the coloring, I think... Again, Alex and Claire did a really nice job here. Just the light sourcing from the kryptonite ring, it's pretty well done, man. It's like, yeah, it's pretty subtle lighting, but it's just enough green that uh, it it feels real. I don't know if it, if that's how the light would react, but it looks realistic enough where I, I yeah. believe it, you know? Like, even though Jim Lee's penciling style isn't the most subtle... I do, I do really like the coloring. It, it, the coloring fits the bombastic 
spectacle of it all, you know? Like mm-hmm. that that's that's what I think uh makes the art look better. Just the mm-hmm. coloring of it all. I like just had another thought thinking about it just in terms of how much this was something that was just meant for the fanboys. Mhm. It I don't know if it's like a clear comparison or like a one for one sort of comparison, but it did make me think of something like No Way Home, Spider-Man No Way Home, right? Where Wait, so, are you going to spoil that movie? Didn't we spoil it in our 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 discussion of it? Yeah. Well, well, I'll just put it this way. Like so much of that movie is based around uh just the fan service aspect of it. Yeah. And and like the people that love it just ate that up so much and I feel like Hush does the exact same thing. Uh, like, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in retrospect, so much of it is just built around these moments where it's like, isn't that cool? Like, isn't that so cool that we get to see Batman and Superman fight? Isn't that cool that Jason Todd comes back? Uh, yeah. Isn't that cool that the Riddler is the ultimate, uh, uh, um, you know, mastermind of it all? Like, he's so much smarter than any of us thought he was, blah, blah, blah. And it's just... Ugh, it's I one one could make the argument that Jeff Loeb knows that nobody buys a Jim Lee comic to see him drawing normal people doing normal things and having conversations. So yeah. in a way, he probably tailored his story around the spectacle. So that's why he's always making exciting things constantly happen every single issue, every other page, basically. Yeah, but. Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't give him credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know what, I concede that. Um, maybe, maybe he does have enough self-awareness. Actually, I don't even know if I believe that. But, <laughs> but remember, remember, this is a guy who wore a karate gi to uh, Comic Con because he he was defending the fact that Iron Fist should be played by a white man. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, well, okay. Don't okay, even Dave. consider the fact that Iron Fist is about kung fu and he's wearing a karate jean. <laughs> but, okay, you know, that that that's the level of self awareness we're dealing with here. That's true. He doesn't strike me as an especially self aware dude in the interviews that I've seen. He's a uh... yeah. So, so the idea that maybe he's he's thinking several levels above his, uh, uh, ability and, uh, you know, making comics for Jim Lee to do what Jim Lee do best. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can't say that I'm, yeah, it's no excuse. It's, it's yeah. just not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the story of Hush because I think there are a lot of unbelievably stupid plot developments like it's another story where if you just scrutinize what's going on and and what's happening it just sounds really dumb and doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So you, you ready for my laundry list? I I took notes. Yeah. Sure, shoot. Okay. Fire and, and this, yeah, this might be out of order. It's not it, it's not necessarily all in chronological order of the story, but but here we go. So so first of all, a big part of the mystery behind this story was the identity of Hush. 
But it, oh. it turns out that Hush was the one new character introduced for the first time. Like yeah. Thomas Elliot. Big surprise is, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Thomas Thomas Elliot, Tommy Elliot is a long lost childhood friend of Bruce Wayne that we've never heard of before. And he's just introduced for the first time in this story. So of course he's the one who happens to be this mysterious new bad guy in Batman's life. Like Yeah. Yeah. That's that is corny, man. How he was introduced was pretty dumb too. Batman gets injured in a fight. In yeah, an yeah. Alley. Dude, let, let and me build like, up to that, man. Ugh. I okay, want to build ahead. up to that. Go ahead. So the beginning of Hush's plan in the first issue was to cut Batman's grapple, which would cause Batman to fall, get his skull fractured, <laughs> and then he would require surgery, right? Like, yeah. first of all, if you could do all that, why not just kill Batman? Like, <laughs> how, how do you calculate his fall to make it so that he only fractures his skull and is going to need brain surgery? <laughs> like, I, I don't get that. And, and like, on He's top a of savant! that... <laughs> he, he was able to use his knowledge of physics to calculate the exact, the exact angle, angle. <laughs> to make Batman fall from the certain specific height and distance to the ground and the come on man <laughs> yeah. just, none of this works Brainiac can't even do that <laughs> okay so Batman gets the brain surgery but but how come he's up and about so quickly after that? Like that that's something that is pretty ridiculous even for comic book standards. Like he he falls hard enough to crack his skull, but he has no other injuries, I guess. So once he has brain surgery, he's able to just continue operating as he normally does, you know? Never mind the fact that in like real life pro athletes get hurt you know they're they're out of commission for a while so it's hard to believe that you can get brain surgery and then just be swinging from rooftops you know the next next day or next week that that doesn't really make sense and then let, let's even think about the the reason why batman requested tommy elliott to be his surgeon so later in the book we discover or batman discovers uh in in the batcave he's just i guess he's just randomly checking his computers right like there isn't any real rhyme or reason to it but he's he just happens to be checking his computers in the batcave and he discovers this kind of microchip sized object that was embedded in his computers that was apparently sending him subliminal messages which was what caused him to think of tommy elliot right at the moment when Batman needed brain surgery. And by the way, when his skull was fractured, Batman couldn't talk, so he told Alfred to call Tommy Elliot by using Morse code to communicate with him. <laughs> does that sound feasible to you? Or does that sound stupid? It sounds stupid. It's a lot of just stupid stuff. It's, uh... <sighs> Again, it's it's this idea that someone got it in their head that Batman is just so Batman he can do all this stuff and like you know when when he's in trouble he can't just ask for help he has to do it in a way that's only Batman can do it right he has to use so, Morse code so he exactly was tapping his hands against the, the so that's the how he communicates that's like how next level Batman is that he can just communicate with Morse code when he needs to it's just so 
even when he's got brain damage and can't use his vocal cords, he yeah. can still talk to you. He can still talk to you. It's so ridiculous. It's so silly. So silly. <laughs> you know, it's it's childish. It's pretty childish. <laughs> it, it's pretty, yeah, dumb. Pretty dumb. Yeah. The the character that we learn who uh who planted that tiny microchip in the bat computer was Harold, which I think it's funny because. I knew who Harold was at the time because I was reading a lot of Batman comics. Yeah. He was a big character throughout the 90s Batman comics. So, you know, I I remembered him even from, like, just the Nightfall era. But I've got to imagine that somebody today who who never read 90s Batman comics, and, and, you know, you have that person read Hush now, and they get to that part with Harold, and they're just like, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> so well, that's random. the that's the funny thing. So I like vaguely remember Harold as a concept. Like I didn't read too many Batman comics in that era because I just didn't have too much access from to it. But I think as a concept, he was something that I was like just vaguely familiar with. Like I I I had no idea what his relation to Batman was. I had no idea like how involved he was in Batman's world or life. But when I got there, I was just like. That's a that's a pretty rant. Like he wasn't someone that they had established early on in the story. He just suddenly appeared in this one like page, even just to yeah, exactly. just to like. It it felt like it was Jeff Loeb flexing to the rest of us that he knew that uh, he knew these characters that were were a semi deep cut in Batman's uh history yeah but other than that it didn't make any sense at all right because it was was pretty lame yeah there was no establishment at any point in the book up to that point that this guy existed at all (laughs) yeah and when you're telling a mystery story or at least a story where the mystery is a central element of the plot that's that's really bad story construction just to throw something in at the last minute without any kind of foreshadowing yeah yeah oh, yeah that it that really that doesn't hold like, up at all yeah it really just feels like at that point you just wrote yourself into a corner and you needed you know uh, you, you needed like a teleportation device to to solve your problem for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it might as well have been <laughs> pretty much pretty much the the other thing that uh really stands out is the ending of the story where we have the Riddler who's revealed to be the ultimate mastermind and it's another example of that twist you know the surprise extra twist ending that Loeb likes to do so yeah. instead of being honest with the reader and planting clues earlier in the story or using foreshadowing he just has this scene at the end where the Riddler is in a room with Batman and he just spews exposition explaining his plan and explaining his motivations. It's it's a lot like the Gilda scene at the end of The Long Halloween, except at least in uh-huh. this case, Riddler's talking to another person. Yeah. But, you know, that's really the only thing. It. Yeah, I, I think well, that's just poor story construction. Here's the thing that I have to ask about that. So even mm-hmm. when I got to the end and like, Maybe this was a product of me having read it late into the night, so I was kind of 
drifting in and out of sleep when I read it. But, <laughs> um, like, I'm not entirely sure how Riddler is the mastermind behind this whole thing. Like, I so the the revelation again the revelation of Hush is that he's Thomas Elliot. Okay, fine, whatever. But mm-hmm. how? Like, what was Riddler's part in this whole thing, other than he just happens to know who uh, Bruce Wayne is? He wanted to be known. Like, he didn't want to be uh, a joke to the rest of the rogues gallery. No, no, I get that part. But, like, how, what what exactly was his involvement with Hush or with any of it? Well, he explains... uh, how he involved most of the other supervillains. I don't really remember. Uh, like, was like, Hush paying him? I don't like, think what's... Hush was paying him. I mean, he was the one who uh, was ultimately masterminding things from Shadows. Like, mm. he was the one who, uh, uh, you know, he got Killer Croc involved, Poison Ivy. Even, so that uh, was it. Like, Harley, he just did this just as a, a way to flex on, on, on all of the villains to show that he smarted in all of them. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Okay. That's dumb. <laughs> That's dumb. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't spend the extra energy to try to figure that out. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it- I mean, I don't know what else to say other than it it just doesn't hold up to an examination. Like, the story is... Ultimately, what is this about? I don't think it's really about anything. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't even have an attempt to, to to do a story that's a tribute to noir. It It doesn't even have that. Like, this is just him trying to do a superhero story and yeah it's it's, it's all about spectacle it's all about just giving jim lee a chance to draw everything that he wants to draw in the batman mythos yeah it's like even even uh just silly things like introducing the huntress into the story right like she shows up uh in a cameo pretty early on when batman is unconscious and Jim Lee redesigned her costume. Like, yeah. It it was a pretty bad redesign too. Like he, yeah. he ended up she she had a pretty solid costume before this, and then Jim Lee gives her this costume where she's just showing off her abs, like yeah. just wearing less clothes and stuff. It it's just weird, man. It's like he just wants to sexualize the character just because he can, I guess. But yeah, you know, from a practical standpoint, it really doesn't make sense why she would get rid of wearing, you know, the padded armor or whatever it was that her yeah. costume was, you know? I, I remember reading, I was reading Birds of Prey at this time too, and Gail Simone was writing it, but because Jim Lee redesigned Huntress's costume, I remember Gail Simone had the scene where somebody asked Huntress, Why are you, what made you decide to, to switch to this uh, new, co- new costume? I think hun- she had Huntress say something like, when you do as many sit-ups and crunches as I do, you got to show off your abs. (laughs) (laughs) That 
that was pretty funny. That's funny. <laughs> I mean, it's as good an excuse as you can come up with at that point, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. <laughs> she worked with what what they gave her, and uh, that was the best that she could do. And yeah, yeah, you got to like, give respect to Gail Simone for that. Yeah, seriously, she could have tried to make some sort of serious uh, explanation for it, but it's just like whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts about the plot or the story developments? No, not really. It's 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 nothing that I can say is worth my time or energy. It's like I I definitely have less respect for this than uh, the Long Halloween. <laughs> what I want to ask you: What you think of the relationship between Batman and Catwoman in this comic? Like, did that do anything for you, or was it laughable? Or you know, I just want to hear you rant on it. Huh. Uh, it it was definitely one of the things that crossed my mind to ask you in reading it was, do you like the idea that Catwoman knows who Bruce Wayne is, or or that uh knows uh, Batman's secret identity? Is that your uh, like, how do you feel about that idea or that concept of them, like, because it's clear that they have some sort of relationship with each other, maybe even flirtatious, right? Mm -hmm. But to take it as far as that, to make them, you know, to make it that where where, uh, Bruce Wayne is so confident in his feelings towards her that he's willing to reveal it all. Like, is that something that you buy? Or is that your preferred... uh, shape of relation uh, is that the preferred shape of the relationship that uh the two of them have with each other albert are you asking me if i ship batman and catwoman yeah sure let's let's go with that <laughs> <laughs> well do you <laughs> well personally i i don't yeah I, personally i ship Batman and Wonder Woman. Okay. Okay. But that that's just me though. Okay. That said, I I don't mind that Catwoman knows who Batman is. I think Yeah. I think that's definitely uh fertile ground for interesting stories between the two characters. Yeah. And and you know, in recent years I'd say that she's probably become his primary love interest. Like it's yeah. hard to do a love interest for Batman because he just operates in this world that doesn't really permit him to have a genuine relationship with a normal woman. Yeah. 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 So in a way, Catwoman is an equal because she deals with the capes and tights. Yeah. She, she involves herself in that world. Yeah, exactly. So, so that, that makes sense. She, you know, she's got that sense of independence so Batman doesn't really have to it sounds weird but it's it's one of those situations where he doesn't have to think of her when he doesn't need to, you know? Like she can take care of herself. <laughs> like he can take she, her for granted. She only exists to him when he has certain needs that need to be fulfilled. <laughs> uh, he has a special bat signal just for her. <laughs> It's just a light that shines up into the sky that goes, 
You up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say that right around this time, though, when Hush was being serialized, that was when Ed Brubaker was writing Catwoman. And I really did like how he developed Bruce and Selena's relationship in his book. And I, I think I think part of that was was because uh Loeb and Lee did make Batman reveal his identity to her. So it, it did affect the dynamics in in the Catwoman solo series. Mm-hmm. So like that that's something I would point to um as a as something good something good coming out of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. What about you, man? Do you ship Batman and Catwoman? That's a I guess I haven't really thought about that too much cuz uh I, I don't think Batwoman Batman is one of the characters that I think about too often in relationships. Um so I suppose as long as anyone can write a convincing relationship for him, that's 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 fine by me. Yeah. I'm dodging the question, man. I'm not dodging the question. That's like <laughs> that's my real genuine answer, man. I just don't uh, think about it enough. Where that's that's my preferred uh, relationship for him. I don't think I don't think I have a preferred relationship for him. So uh, you want Batman to be alone forever? Well. Uh, you know who I, I who I do like for him. You um, want me to guess? Take a couple of guesses. Okay. Um, Catwoman's boobs. <laughs> Only the left one. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the one that truly has his heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about Sophia Giganti from The Long Halloween? <laughs> uh, no. I'd prefer that nothing from that book uh, be made canon. So no, no. <laughs> uh, Barbara Gordon. No, definitely no. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> definitely not one of my preferred ships. Because uh, that one's just weird to me. That one's weird and gross. And, hey, they did uh, that in the cartoon. Yeah, I know, and I thought it was weird and gross there too. So like, <laughs> I can't say that that was something that I wanted to see. Okay, okay. How about how about Raven from the Teen Titans? That's probably even worse. <laughs> I mean, unless your excuse is she looks like a teenager, but she's a she's a thousand-year-old demon. She's actually a thousand-year-old demon. <laughs> In that case, like I have questions for you, but <laughs> <laughs> No. So, the one person that I probably would like to see him with is um what's it called Summer Gleason I think that's her name right Oh from the cartoon Was she in the cartoon I I, I feel like she was actually Was she ever in the comics In the comics I got to yeah. look that up She might be like a uh, you know she might be a vestige of like those really old Batman comics you know when they were trying to give him his version of a uh, Lois Lane or something like that mm, Okay I I think of like uh, Silver St. Cloud or, or uh, Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. Maybe that's who I was thinking of was Vicky Vale. Who's Summer Gleason? Summer Gleason is that reporter girl on the animated series. Oh. she's a Yeah, she's the reporter. 
Yeah, okay. So maybe Summer Gleason's just like their version of Vicky Vale or something like that. But I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, but I think Vicky Vale was, or that archetype was, was what I was thinking of. Like, now that I think about it, Vicky Vale was in that 1989 Batman movie too. So, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure she's, she sounds familiar. She sounds like she's something from uh, the older era of Batman comics, but... Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd probably say someone like Vicky Vale would be my ideal Batman love interest. Okay, okay. There yeah. was also that uh woman who ended up getting killed in Batman Murderer or Bruce Wayne Murderer. I, I already forgot her name. I can't think of her name at the moment. But she was also like a regular kind of person. Yeah. I, I, uh, was she a reporter? I, I can't remember. I, I never read that story, so... I mean, like, I, I knew that there was, like, a lot of hype that they built around it, but I, I never actually read that story. Yeah, uh, I don't know if... Oh, uh, Vesper Fairchild, That's that was her name. Vesper Fairchild. Dang. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she, was a, she was a TV and radio personality. A radio talk show host. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So maybe someone like that. Uh, I'm trying to think. Do I like Talia Head? Talia yeah. is a good one for Batman. She is a good one for Batman. She She's... is the mother of his child. Yeah. She. Uh... There's something uh, like about her that's pretty intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, well, okay. Anyways, but to get back to the main question of, um, what I thought of their relationship in the comic. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I can't say that it was a, a, a relationship that looking at it and looking at what I read where it, it, it made me believe that they were, uh, a good on-screen couple, you know? It's not something mm-hmm. where reading it, I, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to see, <laughs> you know? Um, let me put it this way. I guess the fact that now that you brought it up was the only time that I've thought about it, <laughs> that should be telling of how just ineffective that relationship was, that, yeah, thinking about it in hindsight now, it... it, it it felt like there were a lot of scenes throughout the entire story arc where they were building up to this relationship between Batman and Catwoman, right? Because yeah. so much of it was built. Um, the crescendo of it all uh, comes to this point where Batman reveals his identity to her and accepts her into his life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that to be this big moment in the story and for me not to think about it up until this very moment that you, you asked me about it, that should be pretty telling of just how ineffective that entire relationship was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Uh, like, I don't think it was laughable like you were saying, but it's just, I just didn't care about it. I didn't think about it. Like, you didn't it, feel sad when they broke up at the end. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can't say that it did anything for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, I can't I can't really say it did anything for me either. I, I do think that the breakup scene at the end was pretty lame though. Like it it felt like another instance of like they tried to do some character development in this series or this story where they, you know, they end up together, but then by the end of it, you know, he ends the relationship in on a single page or you know, it takes him like maybe two pages to have that scene where Catwoman realizes that he thinks she's involved with the hush conspiracy and uh just feels like you know that thing that happens in comics where you always want to preserve the illusion of change it it felt like they were trying to prevent the change but they didn't do a good job of preserving that illusion you know like yeah the, yeah. It's like the one change that they did make to Batman, they they kind of walked back on it extremely quickly and abruptly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I found that... It lacked balls. I found balls. that a questionable decision. <laughs> yeah. They they yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything else in terms of... Uh... It's craft or, um, you know, should we like move on to like it's this story's ability to withstand the test of time? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this doesn't withstand the test of time. Yeah, it's not even less so. Aged well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even less like so it, than um, the long Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it has some nostalgic qualities for me. But it's not a story that holds up to multiple readings. And the more that I do read it, the more I see the flaws. It just They all just become apparent. And I don't really feel like I need to own this or anything. Just borrowing it from the library for this episode was was more than enough for me, you know? Like, yeah, I don't think I don't I don't expect to fully reread this comic ever again. Like, if anything, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe I'll like pick it up if I see it at a store and just like flip through the pages a little bit, just to, just to get into Remind the nostalgia. yourself why you hate it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes we need those reminders, man. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Like I'm trying to concoct a scenario where I might like even look at it again. And I think if I was ever at the green apple and I happened to see it cheap in the, you know, discount bin, I might pick it up and flip through it just to just because it's a couple of bucks. But ultimately, I know in my heart I wouldn't spend the money to buy it even for a couple of bucks. <laughs> Would you buy it and give it to a kid? No, there's better things that I could give to a kid. That's true. I yeah, there's like if 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 the Green Apple had a huge sale of stuff up front and in their bin, there are so many other things that I could give to a kid. So many better things. So True that, true that. There's that. Yeah, all right. Do you have any thoughts in terms of the similarities and differences? Or, you know, just to compare and contrast between The Long Halloween and Hush? Because they are both Jeff Loeb joints. I think we talked about We've talked about it quite a bit. 
and you know just to reiterate it's just the the story the structure of both the stories are are like they're obviously uh similar to one another it's obviously jeff Loeb just doing what jeff Loeb does uh telling the same kind of story that he tells over and over again and uh yeah it's it's I feel like with any other writer, you can take two works of theirs and you can go, okay, I'm going to look at some of the common themes and ideas that they explore in multiple ways in different works. Like J.M.D. Mateus is someone who has pet themes and pet ideas that he revisits again and again. And you Mm -hmm. can take a look at two of his works and you can go, you can tell that these are ideas that he wanted to explore uh yeah but, but he explores them in different angles and exactly. with different stories and plots exactly like i think the best uh one of the the immediate examples that i can think of is uh he did craven's last hunt but he also did a story from joker called going sane uh it's a batman story called going sane right mm-hmm. and he's talked about it in interviews from what i remember where there were ideas that he took from Craven's Last Hunt that he wanted to apply to to Going Sane, where he just wanted to to play around with the idea and to see if he could execute it in a different way or explore it in a different way that we didn't see when he did Craven's Last Hunt. You know? Yeah. And that's yeah. an example of a writer who who takes common ideas and does it different enough where it makes you contemplate and consider those same ideas but through a different lens whereas with jeff Loeb, it's almost the exact same idea just put through a copy machine you know yeah, yeah. maybe there, there isn't a whole lot of depth to either of these yeah super superficial differences at best where well you can say that they both have batman but you know the villains are different or something like that uh, he doesn't yeah. use Calendar Man or something, but that's a pretty superficial, uh, you know, thing to point out to make it sound like they're substantially different works when they're obviously not. You know, yeah. he's just recycling yeah. all of his old ideas. Exactly. I I think your example of James D. Mateus is pretty stark contrast with with Loeb because. Because Loeb, I feel like his he tends to recycle his plots, but he also doesn't really seem to have any themes that he likes to explore, you know? Yeah. Like he doesn't there aren't really ideas being explored in either of these two comics. And maybe maybe with some of his other comics you could make the argument that he explores some some emotional ground. Like maybe I don't know, for example, let's just say like Spider Man Blue. Maybe maybe you can make the argument that he explores grief in in that story, but even that might be a stretch. I would probably say that Long Halloween and Hush don't explore any kind of emotional context, or or uh, you know there aren't even I don't even think there's much, if any, kind of subtext layered into the story that makes you think or forces you to 
to examine anything you know like it's it's pretty much what you see on the surface is all there is to the story and the yeah. twist ending is supposed to just be that extra you know oomph to yeah. to hit you hard when you get to the end yeah yeah whereas when you look at those those jmd mateus stories you mentioned yeah on the surface you might say that the plots are similar right because craven's last hunt is about uh craven you know, quote unquote, killing Spider-Man, and then uh, going sane is about Joker killing Batman. Yeah. But the way that he approaches both of those concepts is just wildly different. And then the ideas that he explores are different ideas too. And or even if like the similarities in the ideas being explored, at least they're explored from different angles. So you you can glean something unique from each of them you know and when you read both of them they kind of complement each other because then you're able to like get a bigger picture of just how jm dimitase thinks yeah 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 no for sure for sure yeah and it's just without without the pontificating or without the uh emotional context like jeff Loeb just doesn't really offer anything it's uh, like i said it's just straight up a it's just straight up his stories being put through a copy machine mm-hmm. you know and as as time goes by and as you read more stuff from him it just becomes glaringly clear just how little he has to offer there mhm mhm yeah yeah man so uh it it doesn't help that he said some questionable things too He's he's allegedly said some awful things about Asians. Like remember, yeah, remember when he uh when when the actors from the Daredevil Netflix show came out and and talked about how uh, Jeff Loeb he was pretty dismissive of the guy, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, yeah, like like there was news where uh one of the actors who played uh I forget the character he played a uh... Nobu. Oh, okay, okay. I, I forget. I think that was his name, but yeah, like yeah. the actor uh, came out and, and mentioned that uh, Jeff Loeb discouraged the writers on Daredevil. Uh, he he discouraged them from developing the Asian characters, and the quote that this actor said was, uh, "Well, I didn't I didn't write it down, so I'm not gonna exactly quote him, but he basically said that Jeff Loeb cited the Blade trilogy and and said." You know, Blade kills a bunch of Asians in in those movies, so people don't really care. You know, like we don't really need to bother developing cannon fodder. Jeez, <laughs> like the idea. Yeah. And yeah. then like there was that that whole thing where um when and the, the whole reason why this is coming up is because Jeff Loeb is or was I don't know if he still is, but he he was the like an executive producer on the Marvel television series for Netflix yeah so so he was involved in in i guess casting and stuff too so like when iron fist was being developed they casted a white actor for iron fist even though yeah iron fist was always a white character danny rand yeah but it was a chance uh people you know a lot of people were saying hey maybe a lot of people had a lot to say about that yeah yeah exactly yeah they were were saying putting it out there that hey maybe this is an opportunity to like you know change this character and you know 
kind of right the idea that a lot of the like, problematic issues that came with the character mm-hmm. uh, originally, right? Yeah. But instead yeah. of, you know, taking it into consideration, instead of, like, really work... Uh, or, yeah, instead of considering it or thinking about it, he just straight up dismissed the idea. Yeah, he showed and up, I, remember, I remember what he said was, he said that Iron Fist needed to be white because he's supposed to be an outsider. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty lame, you know? It's it's a pretty tone-deaf thing to say. Yeah. As if, like, an Asian person who comes to... uh Can't be an outsider within their own country or within their own nation, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like... It's really stupid. <laughs> it... It, at best, it was uh, just a a pretty lame way to deflect the conversation from from giving mm-hmm. providing any real uh, contemplative answers or substantive answers. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I I just uh, flipped open Jeff Loeb's Wikipedia entry, and there is yeah. an entire section on the racial controversies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, you know, this is documented. We're not just yeah making it up. It he's, does uh, it does make me think about how Jeff Loeb portrays Asians in his comics, though. What else have you seen in the bid? Like, well, I, well here, here's the thing, right? We just read Hush, and Hush Hush not only contains Batman's Rogues Gallery, but it also contains all of his allies too. You know, like you get Nightwing, you get Commissioner Gordon, Oracle. Huntress, Catwoman, uh, Robin. But you know who's not in this? Who? Batgirl's not in this. The one Asian character in his in his crew, you know? Cassandra uh, Kane is yeah, not yeah, in yeah. this. Like it it just feels like a really significant absence in light of what we know about Jeff Loeb now. And then uh. he does he does throw in Lady Shiva, but he may he treats Lady Shiva as this one dimensional goon who gets like she's supposed to be the the greatest martial artist in the entire DC universe. And she just gets taken out with a chair to the back of the head. It's like yeah. really disrespectful and just undignified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I certainly have less respect for the man than I do the writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair to say at this point, he's not, uh, like it was bad enough when he was just writing bad comics, but over time, as I've I've come to again see more stuff from him in the news or whatever, he just seems like a gross dude. Yeah, yeah. There was also that one Superman Batman story. Uh, remember his first arc with uh, Ed McGuinness? He introduced this new toy man. Do you remember yeah. that? The, yeah, the the and, Japanese and, kid. Yeah, the Japanese kid, and and like thinking back that character was basically a total caricature of what Lo probably thought an otaku was it's just kind of insulting it's it's kind of insulting in light of everything we know about him now yeah again well you could say that it's just him doing one-dimensional characters but yeah it's at, at this point it's it's a question of where does the where does the bad writer end and where does the jerk start? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a fine line. 
it, it really is at this point. It's they're just so blurred together uh, at this point that you know I don't know how much of it is him being a crappy writer and how much of it is him just being a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Loeb. Oh man. Yeah. Did you ever think it was funny that he wrote a comic called Captain America? White. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> for them to do all these like uh, color themed superhero books, and for him to do Captain America White, that always felt really weird, like painfully <laughs> weird. <laughs> uh. Yeah, uh, like I I can't think of anything that he's been on in recent years. Uh... I think he's just been involved in the TV shows and stuff. I don't know if he's yeah. in any comics. Yeah. Who knows? We're better yeah. off without him. <laughs> yeah, true that. So, Albert, well, in closing, what? what would you recommend to people who enjoyed The Long Halloween? And what would you recommend to people who enjoyed Hush? Let's see. Uh, so the one comic that I can think of is, uh, and we talked about this briefly prior to the podcast, but following Hush, there was another big duo that was placed on the Batman comics. And this was, uh, Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo. They were two big names that came off, uh, a hundred bullets, um i think 100 bullets was still going on at this point yeah they, but, they paused 100 bullets for this yeah so uh you know 100 bullets was basically this their uh this critical darling uh of a series that they had put out and it it just felt like it was this thing where a lot of people were like wouldn't it be great if these two guys could like finally do a batman comic right because, mm-hmm. you know, Brian Azzarello was just a dude who was known for writing these really gritty, noir uh, type of stories. And mm-hmm. Eduardo, Rizzo, Eduardo Rizzo's art was uh, just as equally matched for the task. Mm-hmm. And so they got put up on this six-issue Batman run, which was uh, Batman Broken City. And, um, you know... Personally, that is a substantially better Batman comic than any of those two, mm-hmm. by far, miles mm-hmm. above it. Uh, but that's one of my favorite Batman comics ever. Yeah, but you had something to to say about it, right, Drew? Where uh, at the time that it came out, it got a lot of hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, it it came out directly after Hush when it was being serialized in the Batman ongoing monthly series. So just the, the difference between Jim Lee and Eduardo Rizzo is pretty significant. And man, I remember fanboys did not like broken city, at least, at least at the store in Davis where I was at in college. Like I, I know people didn't like it, but I'm pretty sure people from what I think I remember people online didn't like it either. Yeah, I I have a feeling that it was the same. Uh, like I don't generally tend to pay attention to the responses from uh, just people online because, well, they're nothing real, to me. Real people mean nothing to you, so virtual people <laughs> mean even less. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I did remember getting uh, the same sense that I think, generally speaking, most people didn't like it. And, and it doesn't... That's the thing that, I guess, befuddles me, is even if, let's say, that there wasn't anything in the uh, storytelling ability of Brian Azzarello that they could appreciate, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just in terms of the art of Eduardo Rizzo, like, from a technical perspective, I don't understand what it is about the art that they don't enjoy. Like, I I, I definitely think he's better than Jim Lee. Yeah, like by far. By far, yeah. So, uh, and again, uh, like, 100 Bullets at this point in time was just something that was just firing on all cylinders. People could not help but recognize just, like, the craft, the the quality of this book. And mm-hmm. other than the fact that, you know, everything doesn't look like a superhero poster. Like, I, I just don't see what there is to hate about Eduardo Russo's art. Maybe even if it doesn't hit them in their superhero sweet spot. I I think technically you could argue that it's... It's solid looking art, you know. It looks, yeah, you know, it, it looks like what it's supposed to. It looks better than uh, what Jim Lee draws, and yet, I, I wonder how much of it just came from, uh, uh, like, just came from a place of spite, where just because it didn't look like Jim Lee, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, I think that's fair. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's like, fair, but I think that's reasonable to assume. Yeah. Right, like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't at that point. It wasn't even about the the quality of the artwork as much as it was just the fact that it wasn't Jim Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that because uh, fanboys are spiteful sacks of crap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they have bad taste. <laughs> and they have bad taste. The other thing that I wanted to recommend was something that I uh, since we spent so much time talking about mysteries for this episode. Mm-hmm. I I ended up watching a movie this week, and I I thought this was a mystery that was very incredibly well done, and I thought it was something that it, it does mysteries right, where if you pay attention to all the details, they establish it throughout the story, and when you get to the end, the payoff is totally worth it. It's a Korean film called Mother. It came out in 2009, and it's by Bong Joon-ho, and uh, he's known for making the film Parasite but this was one of his earlier films and it's a it's a really it's a really good mystery movie and uh I highly recommend that if you guys have a chance to check it out to just go check it out if you're in the mood for a good mystery it's a the story of a a, a mother who has a mentally handicapped son and one day her son gets involved in a murder and it's the story of uh the mother trying to prove her son's innocence. It definitely has a lot of noir elements, and I will say that once you get to the end, it's 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 a pretty satisfying and uh, surprising ending. So Wait, are you saying it's got a twist ending? Or is it just a surprise? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to leave it for you guys to watch it. 
So I'm not gonna say whether it's a twist or a surprise, but it's a okay. It's a good ending. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up at the library, man. I gotta check that out. Yeah, please do. Like I really want you to watch it, Drew. I, okay. I want every I want our listeners to watch it, and I want you to check it out. Will do, man. Will do. Yeah. What about you? What do you got for uh, a fan of uh, Hush or The Long Halloween? What do you recommend to them? Other than okay. gouging out their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> or quitting oh. reading comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just go play video games instead. <laughs> I want what I want most for you to do is to hold your own breath underwater until you black out. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that for, for someone who genuinely likes the long Halloween, I assume that They've already read Dark Victory, which is the direct sequel. I don't think it's great either. It's of the same quality. But yeah, if, if they liked The Long Halloween, they'll like Dark Victory. Uh, but if you like the Loeb and Sale team specifically, um, or even just Tim Sale's artwork, then maybe give Superman for all seasons a try. Because I think Tim Sale's art is even more spectacular in that book than The Long Halloween. He kind of channels this Norman Rockwell kind of sensibility with colorist Bjarne Hansen. So that was, that's a pretty good visually, uh, it's a pretty good visual uh, comic because it it just gives you a Superman that looks really uh, Midwestern, I would say. You know, it's it's like an early, like a, a year one type of Superman story. Like, I, I'm not going to say that the story itself or the writing is any good, but the, the art is spectacular. And I, I think I think it's better than The Long Halloween. It might uh, be a story that's less insulting. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. less annoying to read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I also remember their first collaboration, Challengers of the Unknown, as... It was something that wasn't the worst thing ever. That's probably better than <laughs> a lot of other Jeff Loeb comics. So if you really like Jeff Loeb, you should track that down. You heard it here. It wasn't the worst thing ever. Stirring recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> See, they should they should quote me on the on the back of the trade paperback. You know, no, that should be on the front cover of the trade paperback. That that it should just be the cover. There yeah. shouldn't be any image. It should just be that in quotation marks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for people who enjoyed Hush, I would recommend Ultimatum because that's another spectacle-oriented Loeb comic with a flashy artist in David Finch. I mean, it's it's a horrible comic, but I would <laughs> if if you genuinely liked Hush, I would recommend it because you actually might like Ultimatum. Or if you just enjoyed picking apart Hush because of all its flaws, then I think you could also enjoy picking apart Ultimatum because it's even worse. Maybe even uh, read Ultimates yeah. 3 with Joe Mad. If if your entertainment is analyzing really bad comics, then yeah, th- those two would be pretty fun to destroy. I mean, uh, dissect. <laughs> if you just like Jim Lee drawing Batman, you could try All-Star Batman and Robin, The Boy Wonder, which was written by Frank Miller. I think we mentioned it earlier, but unfortunately, that was a series that was never completed, so it doesn't have a real ending, I believe. 
it's also a story that I would say Frank Miller was probably writing it with a lot of self-awareness and irony, but I'm not sure if Jim Lee understood the joke <laughs> or, or if he did, it usually doesn't come through in the art. Yeah. Yeah. If you like the character Hush, I would recommend this story that Paul Dini and Dustin Nguyen did a little bit after this one, probably a few years after, but they did a story called Heart of Hush. And uh, yeah, that, that that's probably the go-to Hush story, I think. Like it, maybe it's not like the best Batman comic, but it, it's probably like the best Hush comic. Yeah, I I gotta say he's not a. I'm I'm glad he's not a character that ever took off. Like they keep trying though. They keep trying definitely, but he's a. Uh, it's pretty lame. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's really lame. <laughs> <laughs> and if you like cape comics where the heroes battle greatest hits of their rogues gallery. I would recommend Marvel Knights Spider-Man by Mark Miller and Terry and Rachel Dodson. That's a that's actually a genuinely good comic. Yeah, I would recommend that. Okay, nice. This appears to be our longest episode ever. So do you want to extend it by saying a couple more random things? Or should we just cut <laughs> <head> out? <laughs> I think we're good. I think we're good, man. Uh, we've, we've expelled all of our uh, spiteful juices. <laughs> That, we that did. was as gross as I intended that to sound. <laughs> yeah, th- this might be... Do you think this is our worst ever episode of the podcast? Or is it uh, our best? I think every episode that follows the previous episode is better than the last. So every episode that we come out is constantly our best episode. Awesome. All right, man. Yeah. So uh, don't forget to follow us on uh, Instagram at Between the Gutters. Uh if you want to DM us, if you have any comments that you want to contribute to the conversation, please do. Wait, uh, you are can... you sincere about that? Like, if somebody thinks that we're dead wrong about Long Halloween and Hush, do you really want to hear from them? I mean, I don't check them, so, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> message whatever you want, man. So you're just leaving that to me? <laughs> if I happen to be on and I see it, sure, I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just gonna make me reply to all the crazies. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, shoot us an email at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you know, hit us up on our Twitter. That's just, uh, just uh, socialize with us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Peace out, everybody. Bye, guys.